VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, February the 22nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonce King is back in the producer's chair. Today, we're looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. And as you heard Brian saying, if you're outside or can look out a window, the snow has begun to fall. Winds are starting to ramp up. But a ton of frustrated parents of K-12 students out there in the metro region today with yet another school closure. The NLESD, they pulled the trigger pretty early this morning around 6 o'clock to say that schools would be closed. You know, the sentiment coming from many of the parents who have emailed me this morning is, if the snow isn't going to start before we get our children to school, and the worst of it's going to be over around lunchtime early afternoon, wasn't there an opportunity to get them into school? And of course, no one is denying that we have to ensure that there's safe travel for children. We have to ensure that there's going to be all the right decisions made, but the frustration does get real, especially if there was a couple of days of school closures last week, another one today, but we'll see what the weather brings when the weather brings it. All right, let's go to the ice. And once again, you heard Brian Medore mentioned during the newscast, Austin Mercer scored again last night. That's his third straight game in which he's uh, recorded a goal, 16 on the year, quietly having a very good sophomore season in the NHL, sticking with the ice. Up to the Scotties in Kamloops, B.C., Team Curtis falls to 1-4, dropped a 12-5 loss to the wildcard number two team yesterday. A couple of games on tap for Team Curtis today. They played New Brunswick and then Northern Ontario. And another one. This is a great one. To this date in history, in Lake Placid in 1980, the Americans upset the Soviet Union in what is dubbed as the Miracle on Ice. And everyone remembers Al Michaels' call, right? It was, do you believe in miracles? Yes! I mean, it was a huge victory. The Americans go on to win the gold medal. Out of the 20 players on that roster, 13 actually went on to play in the NHL. Some of them just for a cup of tea, but some of them stuck around for quite a long time. It was a roster full of no-names. You know, guys like the captain, Michael Ruzioni. Who's Michael Ruzioni? But out of the 13 that went on to the NHL, Ken Morrow, a defenseman, went from a gold medal winning team on to play with the New York Islanders to win his first Stanley Cup, uh, of course, four straight, four rings for Mr. Morrow. And the guy who endured the longest in the NHL coming from that American team was Neil Broughton. Broughton played over 1,000 games in the National Hockey League. He still remains today the only player that has won an NCAA title. He played at the University of Minnesota. The title in the NCAA, an Olympic gold medal, the Hobie Baker Award for the best player in the NCAA, and a Stanley Cup. Neil Broughton is also the only player that ever fought Wayne Gretzky as an NHLer. So Broughton, uh, Morrow, and then a bunch of kind of no-name guys out there. Anyway, the miracle on ice. All right, so the schools are closed, but today is Pink Shirt Day. Bullying is a complicated subject, you know, because we use bullying as an absolute catch-all. Whether it's making fun of your freckles or, you know, your mother wears army boots and all those stunned little playground taunts, but it goes all the way to physical violence, and we still refer to it as bullying. So, of course, it's important to have these types of conversations. Maybe, just maybe, they should be a little bit more on the forefront because bullying, whether it happens in school or out in the playground, or even worse these days, is the social media or online pylon that some people get subjected to. But we've got to tackle it. There are some great stories out there about how some people have taken their school back. You know, sometimes, or quite often I would imagine, the recipients of the bullying, they feel very isolated. 
And people are kind of afraid to or loathe to want to get behind that bullied, uh, the bullying victim because then, of course, they put themselves in the crosshairs. There's a story that I remember reading. From, it's this from the United States. And it was the star quarterback in the high school. He took it upon himself to send positive social media messages about the students that are getting bullied, talking about their great marks in math or science or something else they're doing on the side, which may, paints them in a very favorable light. So when the bullies see that the top dogs, the big man on campus, the most popular girls, are siding with the victims, very quickly they eradicated that type of bullying in their school. So I hear the stories all the time, and it's really quite upsetting, of course, for some of the parents, because, look, it's not just about whether or not you get a smack in the mouth or you get your books knocked out of your hand. So many young people who are on the receiving end, they don't even want to go to school anymore. And so when they get there, they spend their day in fear as opposed to spend their day trying to absorb the curriculum. So it has a widespread impact throughout the school. Whether or not you're a bully, for the most part they're cowards. Whether or not you're the bully or someone on the receiving end. So Pink Shirt Day is an important one, but if you want to share the story, even anonymously, you can do it on the show. You know, when we describe the impact on young people, because, you know, we see the really serious headlines you know, there has been stories even in Atlanta, Canada, where young children have harmed themselves because they're on the receiving end of the bullying constantly, relentlessly, year over year. So, big short day. It is. Okay, and inside of this, you know, there was a program. I don't know if they do it anymore. It was called Roots of Empathy. Parents brought their little babies into the classroom in an effort to show to the students just how important it is to uh, show kindness and how we take care of each other and what it means for the nurturing of the baby. And it was a very popular program, and I think it probably worked. On that front, this is a really cute story. There's another one regarding babies, and it's uh, a lady named Allie Boyd. She founded the Circle of Life, the Little Lions program, only a few months ago. And so what happens here is they bring the babies into seniors' homes, visit with the residents. They do the nursery rhymes and the sing-alongs. The residents love it. The babies love it. So that with fruits of empathy, both sides of the spectrum, right? Bring the baby into the classroom to show what empathy and nurturing and kindness and caring means. And then, of course, for seniors. And if you're one of those seniors who's been a participant in the Circle of Life Little Lions program, it would be a great story to pass along today. So this one lady, she had her picture taken with the baby. She says she's putting it on her wall. It'll be there until I die. So she obviously enjoyed the program. And inside the schools, I suppose it won't be too long before we get a court ruling about whether or not, in an effort to fully fund the compensation for the victims at Mount Cashel, that schools might be on the the selling block. You know, in the Schools Act, it says quite clearly what at the end of the denominational system, as long as those buildings are used for educational purposes, they're off, they're out of uh, out of reach for anybody, regardless of how and why we're trying to fund compensation packages. But that might not be the case long term. So anyway, anything inside a school, especially with you parents, and yes, anybody in the K to twelve system as a student or a teacher, administrator, parent, you want to take on anything in education, we should be talking about it, and we look forward to your call. All right, let's get into some cost-of-living stuff. And we should probably do a bit more about money management and, you know, real-life issues in the schools. You know, there's no downside to it. But in the world of, you know, back in the day and the cost-of-living issues, it was this date in history in 1878 that Frank Woolworth opened up his first of many five-and-dime stores, and that one was in Utica, New York. So probably one of the most successful American and international five-and-dime businesses was Woolworth's. And it went by the wayside uh, about 2009. It endured for a long time. Austria, Mexico, Germany. 
There was a copycat, a replica of Woolworths 5 and Diamond Australia, but that was all those years ago, 145 years ago. And today, we all walk into the grocery stores with trepidation. Let's get to some of the contributing factors. So the Bank of Canada, Governor Tiff Macklin speaking out about overall inflation and food inflation. So apparently, the overall inflation has eased to 5.9%. Okay, that's good. Nowhere near the goal of 2%, but it just doesn't feel like anything's easing, does it? Because food inflation is still around 11.4%. So Mr. Macklin, and I think this is interesting how he's speaking about this, he's saying that some of these rises in costs are hidden in plain sight. He worries that with the, and here's a quote from him, it looks more like profit price inflation to me, where companies are very opportunistically have taken advantage of a disruptive moment to soak customers for more than they need to. So, we've seen this in politics too. You know, we play that game as if it's one party, one person's problem, or they're to blame for inflation, which is wreaking havoc in many industrialized modern age countries, uh, including Canada. So, while the politicians play that game, and they kind of shield us from what are actually the, all the overall contributing factors to inflation, they just play the politics. Same thing in retail, so suggests Tiff Macklem anyway. And he says maybe, just maybe, this bit of freeze on rate uh, hikes might go by the wayside if the retailers continue to play what he is insinuating is a game. But inflation at 5.9, great. Groceries, unbearably expensive. I mean, you and I both know it. As I said yesterday, went into the grocery store, got a thing of orange juice and some sauce for a chicken dish, 18 bucks. Two items, 18 bucks. Okay, that's inflation. Let's keep going. So we all know the controversy surrounding the World Energy GH2 plan for the port of port Peninsula. You wonder what kind of reaction is going to be brought to bear with another massive wind project being proposed for Central. So this company called Exploits Valley Renewable Energy Corporation, which I don't know much about, and it's a good job done by the CBC Investigates team about who's behind this company and some of the backing they have and some of the work they've done. Uh, that would be the parent company, which is something called Jade International, I believe. Okay, so 300 wind turbines, which is a massive big project, being able to uh, involve 3,000 megawatts of energy by the final phase, an investment of some 5 to $6 billion, which represents about 6% of the gross GDP in this province. So it's massive. They talk about creating some 2,000 jobs during the construction phase and then 500 permanent jobs, looking for Botwood to be the hub to f uh, ship the fuel to whether it be United States, Europe, wherever they find an eventual market for it. So they've got a bunch of partners, including the Marine Goo uh, Group of companies that are out in Quarterbrook, of course, Marine Contractors Incorporated and Quarterbrook Fabrication and Steel. You wonder what kind of reaction is going to come from Central. Because they've got public consultations ongoing, as they should. So they've had a couple already this week. Uh, this evening, in Bishop's Falls at the Lions Club. And Thursday, at the Classic Theater in Grand Falls, Windsor. They are scheduled for 7 p.m. Because you wonder whether or not it's John Risley, the firebrand that he is, has really garnered much of the pushback in and around the Port of Port Peninsula. If you don't hear the same type of, neg type of negativity and environmental concerns, and this project is much bigger in scope at 300 turbines compared to the 164 wind turbines for World Energy GH2, you know, it might paint a very clear picture that maybe, just maybe, its folks are f uh, focusing on John Risley as opposed to the project 
at large and the scope and the scale of the project, the potential upside, economic and otherwise, for wind energy. But that one's coming out in Central, pending all the obvious, the environmental assessment and the like. But if you're in Central and want to take it on and talk about it, we're happy to do it. Speaking of energy, tomorrow, Quebec Premier Francis Legault is going to uh, come to St. John's for a two-day stop. And, of course, they'll refer to it as high-level conversations regarding the 2041 expiration of the Upper Churchill contract. That 1969 agreement has been salt in the wound for people in this province ever since. So they have reaped enormous benefit. Uh, by 2019, $28 billion of profits flowed to the uh, province of Quebec, compared to $2 billion for Newfoundland and Labrador in a project in this province. Of course, the resentment is real. What role the resentment plays in the political considerations here of renegotiation? Because as much as it feels like 2041 is a long way away, it's really not. It's around the corner. You know, depending on who you speak to, about what kind of cards are held by the two players. And of course, it'd be massive negotiating teams. And to that end, the 2041 Analysis Review Committee that was struck by Premier Fury, they have delivered their report to the government. Of course, we're not going to see anything therein, and I don't blame the government for keeping their cards close to their chest because there's a lot at stake right here. So Legault is talking quite brashly about this in his home province, saying, look, if we can't come to a deal regarding the 2041 contract and the potential for the massive hydro development at Gull Island, some 2,225 megawatts, when compared to 824 megawatts at the Muskrat Falls site. So he says we've got 18 years to build all the dams we want. Yeah, I mean, a lot of political posturing goes on here, but 15% of the power that Hydro-Quebec sells to this day is coming from the Upper Churchill. So it's not as simple as Mr. Legault makes it out to be. Hydro-Quebec is going to have to build an awful lot of capacity to replace what they get from the Upper Churchill. The problem for us is all of the transmission lines flowing south are owned by Hydro-Quebec. Now, it's long been a problem that the federal government refuses to uh, deal with. Is you know, we can have federal authority to allow for the flow of power, whether it be oil through a pipeline or what have you, but they are deathly afraid of dealing with Quebec for the obvious reasons. Uh, much of the political future of all the parties in forming government lies in the 401 and, of course, in the province of Quebec. So we hold some cards here this time. We ran out of legal challenges. You know, we were pretty optimistic with all the court challenges we brought to bear. That went away with the final decision in the Supreme Court of Canada. But Legault is coming to town, and there is a lot to consider here. You know, when you think and talk about mega projects, I'm not so sure the people of the province are really big on another hydro development. We've seen with our own two eyes and the pain that it's brought to bear, not even fully to bear yet with what Muskrat Falls became, but if you want to take on 41, and look, whether or not people like it, and I understand the resentment, and in some corners, hatred for the province of Quebec. But we have no choice but to deal with them. No choice. Not because we've been backed into a corner. Not because we are playing second fiddle. Not because we're the ugly stepsister. It's because we share a lot of common ground. Whether it be the Labrador trough and the mining opportunities in Labrador, and of course with hydro development, and of course with the opportunity to potentially strike a reasonable tariff to flow power, whether it be from the upper, whether it be from Gull, whether it be from whatever development, wind included, to get to the southern, pardon me, in down south, into the rest of Canada, and of course to the Northeast Americans, because they have a thirst for that kind of renewable power. But here comes Legault. I'm sure the welcome mat will be rolled out by some. Not many. All right. You know, I've talked about schools. wonder what the status is of 
blending the English-speaking school district into the Department of Education. Same thing, it would be nice to know about the status of blending the four regional health authorities into one. Talk about creating a behemoth of an operation. And we've never really fully understood what the goal is, the intended goal of that move. You know, there's going to be some job losses, even so, even though the government says that's not the hope. But if we're going to create a more efficient system, then inevitably they're going to identify some redundancies. Inevitably someone's going to lose their job. But what does it actually mean for the delivery of health care? I'm not so sure people are all that hung up on the day-to-day operational issues, much of which we don't see. But does it improve the system? Because that's ultimately what matters to most. Now, people will always blend in the bloat at the executive level and the number of VPs and managers compared to the boots on the ground, those on the front line. But it'd be nice to get an update at some point as to what that means. And sticking with uh, health, this one, mental health. Saw a story earlier this week where a horse therapy program went by the way, uh, wayside for first responders and to deal with their PTSD and other just supports. And now folks are asking, where's Stella? Stella, the support dog. And of course, on her handler, handler Krista Fagan. Apparently for the last six months, Stella and the RNC, or pardon me, the RNC, have turned down all requests for Stella to make an appearance. So... You know, two stories in one week regarding mental health and the RNC, when we all know that whether it be training for Royal Newfoundland Constabulary officers and how they respond to callers who may be in mental stress or distress, and these types of supports seem to have been working. You know, the the students love Stella. Maybe it brings a calming effect. Stella has appeared in courtrooms regarding uh, sexual assault trials and what have you. So even more interesting on this front is that Stella was brought to bear and the program was fueled and funded initially by a private citizen, Jim Hines. He has donated a ton of money to the RNC and the RNC Association and indeed paid for Stella and all the things that surrounded Stella when she was first brought to town a couple of years ago. So Mr. Hines, I think, is probably a little bit frustrated with it and so he should be. And there was always assertions that Mr. Hines, who was uh, a private business person, a philanthropist, was involved with operations at the RNC, and of course he is not. So all that good work that was brought forward by Mr. Hines, and of course program developed, whether it be through the Department of Justice, the RNC, where is Stella is an excellent question. Anyway, if you got an update from the Canada Winter Games, from someone belonging to you, up along in PEI or on PEI, we'd appreciate that, of course, those uh, stories. Lots of personal bets being put up, some good results. And if you want to talk about the games, let's go. We're on Twitter. We're a VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That only happens when you call. Do not go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Good morning, Beaton. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Not too bad, sir. How about you? Oh, stressing out. <laughs> uh, you remember I called back there last year, I think, where my wife was diagnosed with stage four cancer? I think I do. Yeah, well, before she found out that she had cancer, we were working at the Beatty Peace Plant in Valleyfield. Oh, yes, now I do. Yep. Yeah, and we were perched. We, we uh, at the time we were working, we purchased a, a vehicle because we were making good money. We could make good payments on, you know, make all payments on it, right? Mm-hmm. 
So now the work is gone, the EO is gone, and now my car is going to be gone. So I, ca- I contact the bank to see if they could uh, uh, lower my payments and extend the years that I had for the payer off, and they turned me down flat. So, and I'm going back and forth again every every second week with my wife for treatment. She's she's on treatment for the rest of her life. The treatments aren't just to you know, prolong her life. And, you know, I mean, and, and we just can't do it. So I knew this was coming. So I ended up purchasing another vehicle, but it's a 2010, but it got over 200,000 kilometers on it. So I don't know when that's going to break down. So, <laughs> you know, I, I'm between a rock and a hard spot. So. Yeah, it's a lot to have on your plate in addition to your wife's diagnosis. You know, it's always strange to me when the banks are so rigid on that front. Would they rather see a customer go upside down, uh, repossess the car, credit, of course, then goes by the wayside, versus the willingness to work with you, keep the car under you, keep a customer, keep your credit rating alive, and get their money. And extending a loan just means more compound interest, more money for them. So I'm always a little surprised when they're so such sticklers on that front because if you've been a faithful uh, patron of that bank and you've been making your, all your payments on time sounds to me like you're a customer they'd like to keep well yeah, i mean like i told them I, i'm not trying to get rid of the car i don't want to lose the car but uh, my payments is over 700 dollars a month and i'm paying 650 a month for rent alone and i'm only getting maybe like 11 1200 a month coming in so but it's how i pay my rent my other bills i mean I'm not going to have very much left to make a payment on the car, but I told them if they could lower my payments down to, but they asked me would I feel comfortable making payments. I said, well, bring it down to $400 a month, and I should extend the years that I got to pay her, and I said, I have no problem with it. So they, she said, well, I'll contact my manager. She came back. The manager said, no, we're not going to lower your payments. So, and I said, well, if your manager's not going to do that, you tell your manager, come and take the car. Yeah. So, did they come back with just? I can't. I can't help it because the guys are credit credit don't matter me anymore. I I'm, I'm thinking about my wife here is battling this cancer. So, and I got to have a vehicle getting back to the hospital. Mm-hmm. So they said no to four hundred, but they were unwilling to do anything like extend it even a year, try to control the payments at some front, or was just flat not out a, no. It is what it is. Just just flat out no, not a thing. They wouldn't even extend the years or nothing for me. Yeah, sometimes in a vehicle purchase, you know, extending the years, I suppose, presents a concern because at some point some of the major warranty coverage runs out and then you might find yourself in a pickle with still a big automobile bill. But anyway, it's I'm really sorry to hear that, Beaton. Yeah, Before we I go, got, though, sir, how's your wife doing? She's doing very good. The, 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 the treatments have managed to keep the cancer down from going any further. But, uh, you know, I mean, and, and like I said, the guys at the banks, they, they get on TV and they, they say, you know, we're here to help you. Mm-hmm. But when you do need it, well, well like those saying, I guess, it's damn if you do and damn if you don't. You know, so, but regardless of my credit, that's least to my worries. Yeah, fair enough. My worries and my wife. And, then, you know, and if there's anybody out there can help me, free, feel free to call me, 427-9029. Okay, let me write that down. Say that again, Beaton. Uh, 427. Yeah. Nine zero two nine. What kind of help do you think someone might be able to bring forward for you? Well, like I said, I get I, I got another car there, but it's, it's a two thousand ten. There's over two hundred thousand kilometers on it, but that could break down at any time. I, I don't know, but you know, I definitely got to have something a little better than that to get about back and forth again, or from here to Port Lambert. 
Yeah, okay, so if anybody just... Okay, beaten. Uh, interestingly enough, I'll, pu I'll put him on hold. Fonz just uh, whispered in my ear that he's got someone who's willing or going to try to help you. So what I'm going to do is say goodbye. I want you to wish your wife well for me. I'll put you on hold, and Fonz has got some information for you. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. All the best. Yeah, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, so beaten's on hold. Fonz will take that. Let's go to line number four. Sean, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Bill. Uh, Patty. Bill. <laughs> Bill's <laughs> been a while. <laughs> so I, I tell you where that came from. I, I had I was talking to the guy who answered phone. I had a letter wrote to you with, that uh, you know applauded your your presentation of the show. I'm a first time caller, and um, I gotta say you do you present the show in a way that the other hosts didn't, and uh, I think you're unequal in your presentation and the way you, you help people so often. I appreciate that, Sean. Of course, you know. It's, stands to reason that I'm not everyone's cup of tea, but I'm not trying to be, right? We just do what we can, and I appreciate you making time for the show this morning as a first-time caller. What's on your mind? Uh, I'm calling in uh, uh, for a friend of mine who has, um, she's on social assistance and, and rented apartments from Newfoundland Labrador Housing, and she has been, in the last two years, served six eviction notices that have no merit and, and no reasons for them. Uh, one, for example, was said that uh, she didn't pay her rent, which is automatically paid, and the National Labrador Housing should know this. Um, uh, I had a, uh, <laughs> I had a three-page letter written to you, but I tried to email it and it wouldn't go. Um, like um, uh, there on the 30th of, of uh, January, uh, December, she was told she had to be vacated the apartment by the 1st of January from the National Labrador Housing. And the sheriff's office issued her a eviction notice uh, to be out by the 14th of February. And then housing phone back and said she had she could stay until the 28th. And uh, she's just been relentlessly, as far as I'm concerned, her privacy, her dignity, uh, her her just life has been torn to shreds. She's got one daughter. She raised three kids uh, on her own without any support. She is she's a, a character from uh, 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 the was out there, from from afar. She's just a, a great person with a big heart, and uh, I just feel for her. I, I had to call because uh, I've, I've been uh, reading some of her eviction notices, and she tried. She phoned a member for the area and spoke to the secretary, which was more – she was more in, interested in the two apartments buildings that are here, two apartments that are here that are livable, and they are boarded up. And she phoned a citizen's rep, and he never even replied. She uh, phoned legal aid. They denied her help because there was lack of merits. They're supposed to get kicked out with your daughter in the middle of winter uh, with no way to go anywhere. Uh, it's not merit enough. And uh, um, what she called uh, the member and the regional manager never replied. Uh, she, she just uh, and, and she is in a, she's got to be out in a few days and she is in a state. Uh, you know, I really pity her. She is a great person. And um, I, she needs help, and she just seems to be at a dead end everywhere she goes. Sean, you say that one of the accusations is she didn't pay her rent. I mean, that should be easy to disprove if it's not true. Oh, yeah, I know. It is. And, and they, all her eviction notices have been, uh, she appealed them, and they, they threw them out, and she stayed. And the last one has had no explanation for it. And um, the, the housing rep has absolutely been abusive to her, as far as I'm concerned. One conversation that I... I walked in and uh, the housing rep was using the vulgar language and uh, I thought she was speaking to a friend of hers or a family member because the language was being used, but this was the housing rep. Representing Newfoundland Labrador Housing. Yes. 
No, it's unbelievable. Her, her, her human rights are violated. And uh, one statement was made by this rep said that she could afford another apartment somewhere because she had this boat, which was her son's, parked next to her apartment building, uh, apartment, and that if that wasn't, she couldn't afford to go somewhere, she could go with her ex-boyfriend, who she spoke never spoke to in two years, and live in a cabin in Winterton somewhere. So that's just uh, private information that shouldn't be brought up. And shouldn't, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. Where did they possibly get information about her ex-boyfriend? I have no idea. Maybe the conversation they've had, but this um, housing rep has sent her these six notices, and, uh, you know, every day, not every day, but um, regularly she is put under duress, and uh, right now she has uh, at the end of the month to be out. She can't afford to, uh, to rent a storage locker and then uh, pay for rent somewhere in some little apartment. They said that they put her in a, in a place downtown where they, they keep people who have nowhere to go. I don't know what the name of it is. You know, and her daughter, like, it's just unbelievable. Sean, so you say you tried to send me something. Have you tried to send anything to the minister responsible? In this case, it would be oh. John Abbott and or and see what if you want to. Yeah. If you want to send something to John Abbott, an email to John Abbott, who is the minister, and the, someone who's at the head of the Housing Corp, and the housing representative that you spoke with, and you CC me, I'll follow up. Okay, I'm going to send you the letter. Okay. I tried before, but I know somebody who can help me out with it. Okay. I also uh, sent uh, the, the legal aid, denied her any kind of support or, or representation, saying that she had no merit. So I sent a letter to the legal aid to appeal her appeal. And and um, as of yet, I uh, have not heard anything back. Yeah. Okay. So whoever's going to help you out, make sure that I get CC'd on whatever other correspondence goes to the minister or the NLHC or whoever else. And I'm going to also give you a number where you might be able to get some free legal advice this morning. Okay? Okay. This is a great problem. There's a lot of great people in it. But there's also the individuals that um, have... I have no empathy for an individual like uh, some of your previous callers, uh, the one that just called, and he's, you know someone called right away to help him out, and you know that's that's what this province is built on. Well, it's, it, it should be. It's uh, sometimes a real shame that it takes individual citizens to pick up the slack where government drops the ball, which is frustrating to say the very least. Okay, yes. here okay. comes a. All right, here comes a number. So write this down: seven two two. Seven two two. 26. Six. Uh, 2643. Four. So this is for the Public Legal Illegal Information Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. They might be able to give you or point you in the right legal direction since you've been turned down by legal aid. I don't know what will come of it, but if I was you, I'd call that number and ask for Kevin O'Shea. Okay. Uh, I did call this number before. Oh, but, you did? Uh, I may not have spoken to Kevin. And. Um, okay. Um, I will call him. Um, like, uh, I'm. Uh, I, I've got to help her because uh, she, at a time in my life where I was so much self-destruction, and, and she, she, in her first meeting, she took me in like I was a member of family, and I was a stranger to her. You know, like I said, that show uh, come from away, and she's one of those, any one of those characters. She's just a great individual, and has being mistreated in every fact and manner that he can be. Well, let's see if we can't get her some help. So make sure you connect me with that email chain that I suggest. Do try to speak with Mr. O'Shea to see if you can't get any legal advice or satisfaction on that front, and let me know what goes on. Yeah, and I'll let you know the results of the, the letters that I've written and the requests I made for 
um, from the housing, uh, from the citizens and all that, because they have no response, and uh, it's just um, they just uh, ignore any any uh, any letters that I send. I don't know why. Yeah, it does seem like something is unnecessarily sideways here. Yeah, but... I know. I know. I know but uh, there's two apartments here um, in the place that she lives uh, that are completely livable, um, uh, that are vacated. One has been vacated two years, the other one six months. And they uh, recently came up, she said, and boarded the windows and doors of the apartment buildings. You know, there's a shortage of apartments for people to live in, and here they got two that are completely livable. And, and they get boarded up and uh, vacated. And, you know, not to be saucy, but you're sure there's not another side of this story where there's been some sort of negative interaction contributed by your friend? So this no, is... I, she has had no um, no breaches of any of the Tenancy Act uh, policy and uh, has never had um, anyone call to say that she did do something that was wrong. And... and um, some of the accusations are completely false, without merit, and um, the last one has no explanation, no reasoning for it, and uh, it's just... Um, it's, okay, you know, uh, try those things that I suggest. Keep me in the loop via email, and let's see what we can figure out. I will, and you have a great show and a great day, and thanks for your help. I um, I had a bit of the jitters, but they gone away, you know. Uh, that's good. I'm glad to hear it, Sean. Stay in touch. Okay, All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. We'll make it back. Plenty of time to speak with you. The topic is up to you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Uh, Keith, you're on the air. How's it going, Patty? Not too bad this morning, thanks. How are you doing? Not too shabby. Just wanted to call in a couple concerns about COVID, uh, as usual. Um, so recently, uh, after the numbers were calculated for the amount of um, uh, people who have died of COVID since the pandemic started in Newfoundland, it was quite alarming to me. Um, the numbers went from uh, three deaths in the first year to 19 in the second year to 276 in the third year. Um, and the most alarming part of the third year, uh, 276 uh, increase, you know, which is, you know, 14 and a half times what the amount of deaths were in the, the second year in 2021, is that that was the year we were told COVID is mild uh, by our chief medical health officer, Janice Fitzgerald, uh, multiple times, she said, uh, you know, COVID is mild. It is uh, likened to influenza. She made that comparison on multiple occasions. And uh, to me, that's seriously out of whack with, uh, you know, what we would figure uh, mild to be. And uh, kind of I have been asking around and trying to access information as to uh, if there's a plan for uh, the government, including uh, Chief Medical Health Officer Janice Fitzgerald, to sort of not so much retract that statement of COVID is mild and it's just like flu, uh, but to update the public on, you know, the fact that COVID is definitely not the flu and we're experiencing, you know, 14 times more deaths than the flu and it is something that needs to be taken much more seriously than the flu. Um, so yeah, so that's where we're at here in Newfoundland. 
uh, just trying to access information and find out when our leadership is going to actually, uh, you know, present the actual, uh, you know, the facts and not just what they, you know, want or thought at the time. So, well, the, they're very quickly, you know, once the general public, by and large, became exhausted with COVID conversation, exhausted yeah. with the daily updates and the briefings and what have you, there, it seemed to me quite clearly that across the country, it really went from public health messaging to political messaging. So they, you know, put their finger in their mouth and stuck it out the window to see which way the wind was blowing and decided that, well, okay, what we're going to do now is we'll uh, bring updates when required or we'll do a bi-weekly update on the COVID hub. They changed all the testing protocols, dropped all the public health measures. So now yep. we have absolutely zero idea what's really uh, circulating in the community. We have yep. more information about influenza numbers than we do about COVID numbers. And I'm not trying to prioritize one over the other, but it's interesting that we can get a lot of information on a variety of things. But COVID is, you know, it's in the rearview mirror for just so many people for the vast majority of folks it's back to life as whatever normal means in your own uh, personal world but no info to consider and the conversation seemingly just got dropped you know every now and then we'll see a headline grabber whether it be the most recent report in the lancet regarding uh nine or 65 different studies in 19 different countries comparing natural immunity to covid uh, vaccine related immunity okay but what does that tell us beyond you know th that's an important fact but it doesn't even broach what repeat infections mean to people so there's still so much unknown as much as people are sick of it the virus isn't quite sick of us yet no exactly i mean we were we were we were hopeful I mean, you know so the, the problem the issue that i have is okay so when these public health officials were cast into you know into the spotlight and they became these folk heroes of the pandemic uh, a lot of people started you know following them and uh, because before that i mean most people couldn't name who the chief medical health officer was of any province right now we can name multiple uh, of these uh, individuals now the, the problem i have is if you made those statements and you set that tone okay so if you're going to you know sort of wash your hands uh, you know, you're going to punch us pilot the, you know, the pandemic and you're just going to go, yeah, I'm not bothered with that anymore because, you know, people are, are tired of it. If you're going to do that, then if you're while you're leaving the stage, while you're leaving the spotlight behind, you need to give your last warning can't be it's just the flu. It needs to be this is way worse than the flu. This is something you need to take super serious. And and. In a time where we can share information with anyone on the planet with a click of a mouse or our phone, you know, there's no excuse for not having an abundance of information. So uh, recently I, I was, you know, emailing back and forth with different public health officials. And basically what they told me was um, Janice Fitzgerald says not to go by the data of, you know, deaths or whatever, uh, because, you know, basically just assume that COVID is everywhere and it's dangerous. So, so that's fine for people who are looking for it, uh, you know, like myself. But like you said, it's just dropped off, you know, the, the, the docket for most media, most political stuff. And it's this, uh, yeah, there is no pandemic. Well, there is actually. So, the, you know, the numbers are, haven't, haven't even declined. So uh, already in 2023, we've, we've lost, um, I think it's uh, 19 people already in 2023. And that's how many we lost in the entire year for 2021. So if we're moving into a learn-to-live-with-it phase of, of human life, which includes COVID-19, 
you know, hopefully not forever. Hopefully they come up with, the, you know, the, the polio level vaccine and we can take it and then, you know, really get back to 2019. But if we're going to live in that world where we're saying, okay, there's nothing we can do, which I completely disagree with, okay? But that's, you know, I'm, I'm not one for, hey, let's give up and just say there was nothing we could do. Um, but if we are moving into that, that world, then people need to know that this is not the flu. 14 times more people died of this virus in one year than, than the flu on most of our average years. So the other one is kids, right? Because we've heard this a million times. It doesn't really affect kids. So last year in Canada, 51 kids under the age of 18 died from COVID. Now, that's not that alarming when, when we have this new, you know, uh, bar of acceptable death in society in Canada, uh, you know, because now it's like, oh, yeah, only 300 people died, whatever, uh, you know, which is, is ridiculous. But this is the, you know, how we're being climatized and our environment has changed. But 51 yeah. kids died in Canada and the average flu deaths for kids in Canada is nine. So to claim that this virus is mild and to keep that going by having no information, no, you know, they're, they're not given any updates on anything. They've dialed back testing. It's like you can't get tested even in an emergency room. This virus is not, you know, uh, something you want to mess with. It can mess your heart up, your, your brain, uh, you know, your immune system, all kinds of things. And to not give any info and just, like I said, punch this pilot, wash your hands, it's gone. Uh, it, it's, sure. it's super concerning. Well, you know, there's a variety of contributing factors here. I would suggest, just from where I sit, that the general public, the majority of, have no appetite for any revision back to mandates and or placing restrictions on just about anything. I mean, look no further than going to a game or going to a restaurant or going to a party or going to bingo. Or people are just going back to where they were. You know, some of it, I think, was... The medical professionals should have listened to the social scientists because the way the message was crafted very much came across as fear-mongering when I've never really understood that because people want information on everything else. Why wouldn't you want information on public health? You know, you do, what, do with it what you will. So if someone says the update is this many new cases, this many hospitalizations, this many in critical care, this many have had a COVID-related death, just treat that information as you want. You don't have to be afraid of stuff, right? So if no, you're clamoring exactly. for information about every other thing going on on the face of the earth, but loath to hear anything about public health, I mean, that's kind of on you. I mean, if I bring up the numbers, yeah. and I don't know how many times I've said this, I'm not trying to scare anyone. It's just about being aware. I mean, I would like to know what's going on, whether it be with COVID or anything else here. If there's something I should consider and understand, and whether it be vaccine effectiveness, which I think really derailed the whole conversation, because it's not as effective as we all hoped it would be. And we were misled on a variety of fronts. But because of yep. that, it went from health to politics. And politics should play a very minor backseat role on these types of matters. You know, public health is not a matter of being a liberal or a conservative or a socialist or a communist or a capitalist. It's just none of those things. So I really had a hard time, myself personally, navigating this whole fear-monger nonsense because offering information does not necessarily have to make you afraid. It just, has to make, it just gives you the information that you can gauge yourself and your risk accordingly. That's it. That's all I ever tried to do. But, you know, the whole fear-monger stuff, I think, again, that was based in politics and not in health. And, you know... Keith, I appreciate the update. Even if folks don't want to hear about COVID, look, I get it. Do you think there's anyone more sick of listening to, uh, to COVID than me? No, probably not. But we still have to consider what's right there in front of us, only in a, an effort to be aware and not to be afraid. So 
please just treat information, gauge your own risk, because that's where we are at this point. There are no restrictions. So if you find yourself vulnerable with one of these stated comorbidities, then judge yourself accordingly. And if someone gives you a piece of information, treat it as you will. It's not about making you afraid. And I almost got sick of saying that, but I felt like I had to clarify every time because that's the immediate pushback I get. You're fear-mongering. No, I'm not. I'm giving you information. If I give you information about uh, a wind project or oil and gas or mining or forestry or fishery or education or criminal justice, it's just info. It's not to make you afraid. It's just, you know, treat it as you will. Keith, very quick final word to you before I have to go. Yeah, exactly, Patty. I mean, it's not about fear. It's about, you know, we have to think of more than just right now. So our healthcare systems across the country are in shambles. And that was, you know, that was happening before, like we were moving in that direction before the pandemic. So the, the problem that I have is, is a lot of people are just, you know, and it's, and it's not to say that they're choosing to not be safe because a lot of people legitimately think if they get COVID, it's no big deal because the acute phase when you actually have it is fine. Right. So it's not a comparison, but, you know, most people, when they catch uh, HIV, they don't they're not sick as a dog while they as soon as they caught it. The damage happens later. It, the same thing happened with polio. So people would get polio years later. They develop symptoms and then some of them like, you know, crippled par- paralysis, everything else. But the, the problem I have is that so many people actually do not know. And if if you're going to give everyone the proper information and then they decide, then fine. You know, this is going back to uh, when HIV and AIDS came on the scene and it was only only homosexual people can catch this. No big deal. Yeah, right? well, that's right. And I unfortunately do have to go. They're flagging me off yeah, because sure. AIDS was called a gay cancer. I mean, just imagine what we've learned uh, since then. Uh, Keith, exactly. thanks for this. Ha- have a great day, Patty. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. And, you know, I, 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 it's all very predictable sometimes about how the reaction will flow in. And someone says, you know what, sakes, more COVID talk. When, in fact, if we're being honest, We've very seldom if ever talked about COVID on this show anymore. If someone wants to bring it forward, whether it be in opposition to what Keith thinks or what Keith thinks or anything in between, that's fine by me. But, you know, we have given folks a break from COVID, not to pretend it's gone away, but people were tired and they were overwhelmed and exasperated with the constant bombardment of COVID. But if you want to talk about it, you can do it. When we come back, oh, this is great. Annette's in the queue. Her grandson is on Team NL playing a little ice hockey. They're off to a great start at the Canada Winter Games. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Annette. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thanks. How about you? I'm good, thanks. Right. Just want to give an update on the Newfoundland uh, Canada Games in hockey. They went 4-0 so far, and they're heading to play off against Nova Scotia tonight. Yeah, people don't uh, maybe understand how they set up these uh, pools when you go to the Canada Games. One of my boys played in the Games uh, back in 2017, so they're in a pool with, I think, both territories, uh, Nunavut and PEI, right? So and they, they yeah, yes, yeah, yes. they wrapped up their fourth uh, win, beating PEI seven one the other day, and now they move on into what they call maybe the, the the knockout round and the potential to move on to the medal round. So they're playing great, obviously. Oh yes, they are. They're having good games and uh, and they're working hard, and that's what they got to do now tonight against Nova Scotia. <laughs> yeah, certainly a different test playing against Nova Scotia than it would be their, their first four competitions. And look, I mean, have you been talking to him since he's been up in PEI? Uh, yes, 
My yes, I've been. Ta- my grandson's name is Jack Bartlett, okay. and I've been talking to his dad and his mom, and they keep us up up on tabs about it, right? So they're having a great time. The whole team they're having a great time. I guess all Newfoundlanders are having a great time up there. I, you would think so because you know, for every single one of those players or any competitor, this is very likely the biggest competition they've ever been involved in. Even if you gone to the big Atlantic tournaments or even played in a national event, none of them have been at a, a, a tournament or games where there's 20 different sports and athletes from all these disciplines from all corners of the country. So it's a really different thing. It's a real eye-opener. I loved my experience. Oh, yeah, and my son and my daughter-in-law says they're loving it. Everything And the rinks are all come out with all the lights and everything. So it is a good experience for everybody, right? Yeah. Did, uh, I know the hockey team went to the wheelchair basketball. Did you happen to speak with Jack about that? No, I never. Um, no, I wasn't talking to him about that. I must do that today when he's free. Let's ask him about that. Yeah, because that's one of those things, you know, you seldom get the chance to see so many different sports so close to where you're playing and living in a little athlete's village. What are the accommodations? I'm not even sure I know. Um, they're, they're staying in a, a dorm, I believe, that was all renovated, all the team. Yeah, and, great uh, stuff. Yes, so I, I think that's what my son said, right? And, of course, they have a... A bed and breakfast and that, right? But anyway, they're really enjoying it, and I just wanted to say that anybody want to stream it, Canada Games website tonight at 8 o'clock. Yeah, I know a couple of players, including uh, Paddy Gillespie, who's on the team. Where does Jack go to school when he's here at home? Well, Jack is actually, Jack is up in New Brunswick now, and he plays for the Champions Hockey Academy in the Christian Hockey School up there. Oh, very cool. Where did he go to school when he was here? Uh, he went to... Uh, uh, he lived in Topsail and he went to, to St. Thomas Villanova and then Holy Spirit for grade. He's in grade 10 now, right? And so where would he have played his minor hockey? He would have played his minor hockey with the, uh, the Renegades, CBS. So, uh, yeah, the CBR Renegades. They're tough. they got a big association. Yes, they do. Yes. Well, Annette, I'm glad you called and I'm sure you're cheering on Jack full-throated here from home. Yeah, you probably knew my son, Chris Bartlett. That's his dad. He played hockey for St. John's. And oh, Chris was a super player. I know Eddie as well. Yes, and Eddie. Eddie lives in Winnipeg now. <laughs> yeah, Eddie uh, uh, not only played a lot of hockey, but did a lot of coaching down the St. Bonds. I had a lot to do with the uh, CBs for a while, if I remember correctly. That's true. Yes, they did. Yeah, yes. and Chris. I mean, Chris was one of the the best players around for a long time. Won a bunch of herders. Excellent fellow. He actually taught at my alma mater at my elementary school. I believe he was at Rennie's River, which was Pi's 10th, right? Yes, that's right. And yeah. now he's at uh, St. Edward's. He's principal at St. Edward's. Yeah, they're, they're nice guys. I like those yes. Bartlett boys. Thank you. I'll let you go now. Well, thank you. Glad to speak with you. My pleasure, Annette. Thanks for the call. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. Jack, having a great time. And, you know, it's, there's a lot to being at the games. It's not only the competition. And you're getting to play against people that you've never seen before, right? Maybe you've been to a couple of events as a club team and you've been exposed to a couple of the guys. But it's the opening ceremonies. And then every night, when we were in Winnipeg for the games, every night in the outdoor festival setting, of course, in the wintertime, not quite as easy, but there was music representing every single province and territory they could go to each night. And while we were there, of course, the Newfoundland uh, entertainment was Doyle, (laughs) which was great. But we went every night, and there's athletes from everywhere, meeting people from all around the country, and then, of course, getting to go see some different sports that maybe in your busy school and sports life while you're at home, you never get a chance because I know the boys' hockey team, they did indeed go watch uh, some wheelchair basketball, which, and of course, we've had a wheelchair basketball Olympian, Liam Hickey. Right? 
Anyway, how are we doing on the phone there, Alphonse? Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Gavin's here to talk about long-term care. The Wills have a very personal story that they have shared. We'll try to retrace some of that today and some of the work that the province is looking at regarding long-term care and personal care homes. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Gavin Will. You're on the air. Hey. W- welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Patty. Uh, pleasure to be here. And uh, I, I just wanted to call in about the uh, about the review of long-term care that was uh, that was announced by the government a, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, because uh, I think that it's uh, certainly uh, I, certainly a very positive step. It was unfortunately uh, it was too late for uh, for my parents, um, as the Ray and Delia will, because they, part of the review is going to be including the uh, the separation of calls. Gavin, do you care. mind retelling the story of your parents and their separation? Because I think those yeah. stories drive the point home to so many, whether or not they're dealing with it today, but they might have to deal with it in the future. It, uh, I'd, be, I, I'd be pleased to. I, actually, this month marks the one-year anniversary that uh, that my father was uh, was told that he had to go to a long-term care facility. My parents were living at a personal care home in St. John's, and uh, my my dad had Parkinson's disease, and it had progressed to a stage where the uh, where staff were unable to look after him adequately, adequately at the uh, at the personal care home. This was certainly understandable. Uh, however, it caused great distress for both of my parents and for the family when it was uh, when uh, when we were told that uh, that my mother, who has dementia, uh, would not be able to uh, to live with him when he moved. And uh, and, in, and in February of last year, uh, the uh, what they dreaded would happen did in fact happen, and uh, the uh, and it was exceptionally difficult. My mother didn't understand what was going on, didn't know where her husband was, and uh, myself and my sister had to put up signs in her room to let uh, to let her know that uh, that her that Ray, her her, her husband, was being was around, hadn't left her. Uh, I, I, my dad really didn't understand, uh, was, was angry. Uh, and uh, he understood perfectly well what was going on. And uh, it was uh, it, it was completely unnecessary, in my, in my opinion, for two reasons. One, they did have space at a long-term care home for my mother. There was a spare, there was an empty bed in my dad's room that was, uh, that remained empty until he died in October. And also, uh, it was doubly uh, 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 frustrating because there is a model which had been set, an example that was set by by the government of Nova Scotia in 2021, where they uh, were, where they where they did away with the policy of separating couples who are living in in care. So that's so that's kind of the background to it. Uh, I, I organized a. I wasn't the only person to be fighting this. Other people have had petitions and have made representations as well. I organized a petition and uh, got over two two thousand uh, names at least so far on, online and on paper. This was presented by by Jim Dinn in the in the House of Assembly on two occasions last year, and uh, and 
I've been involved in politics and uh, for quite some time and uh, organizing at the uh, petitions. And I got to say, I never found it easier to get to obtain support for, for for this particular cause ever. So when the province announced that they were going to do this review, and it's all-encompassing, including the separation of couples, you publicly put your name forward that you would be willing to sit on this committee as a person with lived experience, I think is what the, the reference yes. they made. So yeah. ha- have you joined the committee formally, or has that been decided yet? Oh, that, no, I, I have not been contacted. Uh, uh, I, I have no idea what's going on there. Um, the uh, I would be certainly happy to. I think that uh, it's, I think it's important that... Uh, that whoever is uh, is chosen to sit on this committee uh, is uh, has a critical eye and, uh, and is willing to uh, to to listen to people and to tell things as they are. Above all, regardless who of who's chosen from the public to sit on this committee. Sure. Yeah. You know, you know, these are big, broad strokes too. I mean, the minister, of course, Tom Osborne, says. We can't follow Nova Scotia's path at this point to legislate something that they can't deliver on. But I wonder how much work we've actually done with our Atlantic Canadian counterparts in Nova Scotia to see what they did and the approach they took. Because when I heard your family story and I've heard other uh, similar stories, it's absolutely heart-wrenching. To know that your mother thought that her husband left her after decades together is just something that if we can avoid it, we should at all costs, whatever it takes. Because... You know, we can talk about quality of life when you're in a long-term care home, but quality of life will be denigrated to the nth degree if you're separated from your partner. So there's just a lot to this, whether it be uh, enhancing staff engagement, I think, was part of it. Uh, quality of life, I'm sure, is all-encompassing and it includes a bunch of different moving parts. But who are the representatives on the community, if you can remind me? Because I know the seniors advocate, I believe, is part of the committee. As uh, Dr. Susan Mercer, I believe, was on that committee. Yeah. Then there's a couple of other folks in charge with... Uh, Actually, there's a representative from Nova Scotia. If I now just pops in my head, is that not the case? I believe so. The uh, the uh, I, I, I'm not I'm not particularly familiar with the with the you know with the biographies of those who are on the committee. Okay. I am concerned that there's uh, that there is so far nobody from the community who's been appointed. Somebody basically kind of you know you know the, the public utilities board has a citizens uh, rep on there who speaks for the for the people. And uh, I, I, that person has traditionally been very successful when, uh, you know, when large bureaucracies and large companies uh, say they want to have rating, rate hikes. And the citizens' representatives have done a great job in, in showing that that's not always necessary. And I am concerned that by having a number of, uh, of insiders who are sitting on this committee uh, will uh, we'll get – a kind of a bureaucratic view of of what's going on. We definitely need to have uh, the uh, uh, the public uh, involved, and not just for separating long uh, couples in long term care. Because I think that the main question that, would, that there needs to be a, that, that that should be posed to people when they is what kind of care do I want? What kind of care do do my children want when they get to that age? Because at some point, unless you die, you know, suddenly. You're going to need some form of long-term care, and that's the. So the question is, what will that? What do you want that to look like when you are in that position? Absolutely, and I mean, I think your voice would be important. I know that there is a formal seat for someone with 
experience in the long-term care and or personal care system. Uh, and I just dragged up the uh, the list of those who are already part of the committee. So Dr. Susan Mercer, as I mentioned, she's the Clinical Chief of Older Adult Care for Eastern Health. Dr. Janice Keefe is the Director of Nova Scotia Centre on Aging, which should be able to bring some helpful uh, best practices information. Uh, she's also the Chair of the Mount St. Vincent's Department of Family Studies and Gerontology. Uh, Kelly O'Brien, President and CEO of the St. John's Care Group and a former President of uh, VP, pardon me, of Western Health, and then a voice like yours. So, and then we add to this conversation, and I know it won't be addressed in this, but, you know, if we're following the health accord, and they talk a lot about elderly care, and there's a lack of appropriate policies and protocols in place for uh, adult care, if I read the uh, health accord properly, and then, of course, add to it, we've got to have a broader conversation about aging in place. There's the thought that there might be a benefit coming from the federal government to age in place. We know that there's key recommendations in the health accord for more opportunity to age in place. So this becomes such a broad conversation, but we have to grapple with it because not only the aging demographic currently in the province, but at some point, I hope to be a senior, and at some point, I'm going to hope that I have the supports, number one, hopefully to be able to age in place in my own home. But if I go to a care facility, I need to know that we've ironed out the absolute shortcomings and the gaps in the service. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's never going to be perfect. But if we don't ask, uh, but if we don't uh, uh, answer, ask that question, how do we want to? How how do we want to to see our lives as we age? Then we're not going to get the answers that we need. And I I agree, hundred percent with you there, uh, Patty. I appreciate the time, Gavin. Would you like to say anything else? Uh, no, I think that, uh, that that that'll do it for now. Except that uh, I just want people. People to know that uh, that the well, the, the reason the guy doesn't he mentioned uh, my mother was in uh, after my dad uh, died in in October and my my mother was moved from uh, suffered a fall in the in a personal care home and because of the of the risk to uh, to staff and to my mother the, the home would not take her back she ended up in uh, in the emergency ward. She was there for two and a half weeks and that, and was bedridden for that time. She was not bedridden before she fell, but because but she's been but but after uh, spending that amount of time in the in the uh, in the emergency ward, she uh, before she was moved along to a long-term care spot, she has lost the ability to uh, to 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 get out of bed and she's bedridden basically I think for the rest of her life. So it's. Um, there were, you know, there was. It, it was very. It's been very upsetting to see that that's uh, and frustrating to see what's been happening, you know, on, on a personal level, you know, when these, uh, you know, as we uh, in a long-term career system. Appreciate the time this morning, Gavin. Thank you. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye bye. We got to get this right. We just do. And so I, I suppose there's a bunch of different tentacles. Personal care, eligibility for placement. Uh, and, you know, at this point is a, a bed in a long-term care facility. You may indeed have to go uh, far afield from where you live when the first available bed comes up. So there's a lot to this review. And I think we still need to know more about what the federal potential benefit for aging in place and if we're going to follow the health accord as a blueprint for health care delivery in this, in this province, then they're quite clear. The number one option for most, I would think, if, I mean, if it comes to a point where you absolutely need the assistance of a long-term care facility and that setting, f fair enough. 
But there's so many seniors out there that if they were given the appropriate level of support in their own home, they could stay there. And that's where they want to stay. And you all know why. Because that's where they're comfortable. That's where the familiar surroundings, close by their family, close by their friends. So anyway, there's a lot to it. But the topic, we can speak about anything under the sun when we come back from this break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to the Liberal member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks of St. Barbara, Lance Meadows. She's also the minister responsible for municipal and provincial affairs. That's Krista Lynn Howell. Good morning, Minister Howell. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm well, sir. I wanted to call in this morning to have a, a quick chat about a recent announcement from the Department of Municipal and Provincial Affairs. Um, earlier this week, we announced our Building Age-Friendly Communities Grant. And uh, this is in collaboration, of course, with the Department of Children, Seniors, and Social Development. And we've got some funding available for communities all across the province to work on any issues in their communities that would support active, healthy, age-friendly communities for seniors. What, what does that mean? Well, we've got uh, a bunch of opportunities here. Anything that um, will allow communities to upgrade, to accommodate the needs of seniors and, and all individuals as they age. So. Um, for example, if a community wanted to increase access to recreational or municipal services or um, increase accessibility of some of their pathways or to make their washrooms and some of their facilities more accessible, to put new signage in to identify certain purposes for different spaces or even some safety upgrades to put in enhanced railing or lighting or any of the things that would contribute to uh, safer spaces and more engaging spaces for seniors in community. How about in their own home? In their own home that would be a different program. Right now we're focusing on building the communities and um, there's a lot of great work being done across the province. We've got several communities who've undertaken types of ventures like this to make their communities safer and more accessible and uh, they're doing great work. I know I visited Clarenville just a little while ago and they've undertaken a massive program in their community and the business sector has bought in and they're doing great work to make sure that their community is safe and accessible for seniors seniors to, to live their best lives in their communities. And this is, you know, nothing uh, strange to the people in these communities. They've been doing it for years, but it's, uh, it's been highlighted lately as we talked about the role of communities and um, the impact that they have on seniors as they age. And it's, it's one of the key tenets, of course, of the, the Health Accord. So uh, we're certainly um, working towards making sure those initiatives are forwarded and uh, hitting the front lines. And I know that this is certainly an important issue for the seniors advocate and uh, making our communities age-friendly certainly is a, a priority. And uh, we're very pleased in the department to have the ability to do that type of work at, at this time of the year, and we want to get this this funding out and get it into the hands of our communities. So just wanted to, to call in this morning to encourage all municipalities. There's $20,000 up for individual communities and 25000 for uh, a regional project that would bring um, a highlight of, of seniors' accessibility to your area. So 
um, just wanted to let people know that that's available and get the word out there. Can people double up or municipalities double up on some of these programs, including the building age-friendly communities, with other complementary programs? Because one of the age-friendly things absolutely does include not only in your own home, but how we uh, plan for the future, not only for accessibility for public buildings and parks and the public spaces, but what the future looks like to accommodate aging in place, aging in your community, accessibility, and affordable housing, all those things. So can people bundle up complementary packages there? Um, well, that's, uh, again, fairly new program. So if that's an initiative that a community comes forward with and brings us a, a solid plan, then it's something that we would be willing to consider. But I think you, you touched on a very important point there is that we have to do significant planning for the future. We have to look forward uh, as to what our communities are going to look like. And uh, we got to take these steps up front to make sure that um, our communities are safe spaces, that our seniors are happy, content, and safe in their communities. And uh, as you mentioned, can age where they, they want to, to age at home. Uh, is there, what's the total uh, pool of money here? We've got $400,000 on dock and hoping to get that out to communities as quickly as possible and uh, want to see some great work happening all across the province. You know, and communities are doing a great job with the funding that they receive. They, they figured out how to make things work. They're very creative with how they do that. And, uh, you know, they're providing the services closest to home to these residents. So they have an understanding of what's needed in their communities and what could be most beneficial. So we certainly want to encourage and support that and in order to continue, you know, the good work that they're doing. Applications being uh, accepted now, when's the deadline for applying? The deadline for applying is, is coming up quickly. Um, March the 3rd is the deadline. So we want to get in as quickly as possible so that we can get these things reviewed and get the, the funding back into the hands of the community. Yeah, so hopefully communities are listening and will do indeed take advantage of the money that's out there for building age-friendly communities. I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, broach this topic with you as well because it was all the rage there for a while, a lot of headlines, a lot of pushback, a lot of applause about regionalization. I would think, or I would suggest that, it got off to a bit of a ragged start, especially for those who were excluded from the working groups at MNL, notably the local service districts and their leadership. There was talk of, you know, fast-tracking this and trying to come up with what a county system might look like and there's not a one-size-fits-all. It kind of went by the wayside. I haven't heard anything about it in the recent past. Where are we? Well, we're still very much working on it. It's still very much a priority for our department. But like you said, there were a lot of uh, factors that had to be weighed in there. And I think one of the greatest challenges, look, Patty, if it was easy, somebody would have done it before I got here. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's not a, a new concept. So I think um, it's a it's a task now that will be born out of necessity for our communities as we figure out how to do things better for um, for communities all across the province. And, and one of our greatest challenges certainly is the size of our province and, and our population and how it's distributed all across the province. So um, that's one of the things that we're looking at. We're still very much working through the recommendations um, that has come forward, and uh, we're looking to communities for answers and solutions because uh, it's happening organically. You know, these communities have come together. There's many examples where they've pooled their resources to build a capacity beyond what any single small community could offer. So arrangements that, you know, they've come together to cover purchases of asphalt or fire services, garbage, recycling, water systems, you, you, know, you know, they've already done those types of things. So it's, it's an approach that we can build upon. And um, we're working on our municipal legislation now to help streamline some of those decision-making processes for communities so that we remove some of the stumbling blocks that they may have had before. And uh, we want to make it easier for communities to work together and to be modern and to be enabled.
Have you formally brought uh, representatives from the local service districts into the fall? Because that was the loudest pushback group. Yeah, I've made it around the province uh, after we received the report and, and heard those concerns. I did a tour, and uh, I think I had meetings with over 50 uh, local service districts on incorporated areas to gain their perspectives, and that certainly those conversations uh, informed our decision-making as we moved forward. I mean, what's the intended goal here? Because some people will say, look, I don't want to pay additional fees or taxes to a regional governance body and not get any additional services or losing my own identity as one community where I have roots of generations long. So how do you answer those questions? Because I think people are justified in saying, I don't want to pay more money for no additional services. Right, and, and that's, that's a very valid concern. So, you know, as we look to examples that have occurred all across the province, had the opportunity last week to sit and chat with the mayor, the deputy mayor and councillors from Steadybrook, and they've had some great success in how they worked on a regional project and how they've worked with the communities uh, in their periphery to make things better for all the people in their area. You know, and as they pull their resources together, these are uh, these are ways forward for communities that may otherwise have struggled in some capacities. So, I think once we see examples of how these things are working and how communities are moving forward on these types of initiatives, it certainly makes sense and and it has a practical application for people all across the province in, in communities that, as I said, may have not had the capacity to conduct these things on their own. What do you think is a timeline where we'll see some actual traction and some movement on this beyond consultations or beyond provincial tours? When do you think that we're going to see some actual creation of accounting system so that people can wrap their mind around what it means as opposed to thinking, you know, another layer of government, more taxes for no more services. So when do you think we're going to see something in reality? Well, that's exactly the point. We don't we don't want to create another burdensome layer of, of taxation or governance or anything that is going to hinder how communities move forward. So we're working diligently to make sure that we get a, uh, a good plan when we move forward with it, something that makes sense and uh, something that's feasible. So that doesn't happen overnight. Those are very uh, very broad conversations, and we're working diligently now to narrow it down to make it practical and applicable to Newfoundland and Labrador so that when we do have a plan, it, it looks it's reasonable and it makes sense. I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you so much for having me. Just extra reminder to communities to get their applications filled out and reach out to our department. We're certainly here for support, and if there's a way that we can be of any assistance to towns, uh, let us know, and um, hopefully we'll get this money at the door and see some uh, major advancements for seniors in our communities. Thank you, Minister. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's uh, Minister Crystalline Howell. She's the minister responsible for municipal and provincial affairs. She's also the Registrar General, as a matter of fact. Uh, let's take a break. Big oil's in the queue. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Reg, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I'm a first-time caller, and uh, I want to uh, talk a little bit about... uh, our friendly big oil companies. Okay, go right ahead. Welcome to the show. Yeah, um, Patty, it, it's my understanding that during the COVID uh, era, the federal government and so on uh, provided so much support for big oil and whatever to help them through the COVID. Is that 
thinking correct? Yeah, it is. There was a pot of money, I think, added up to somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 odd million dollars, and it was all for oil companies, not for oil company employees or oil uh, industry workers. So, yeah, a lot of money. And for instance, going simply to the resumption of uh, work out of Terra Nova, and of course, the FPSO that got refurbished over in Spain and floated into CBS not too long ago, they got couple of hundred million dollars in cash. And we also deferred three, or pardon me, not deferred, we walked away or forfeited future royalties of some $300 million on top of it. So, yeah, plenty of support went the government, or pardon me, the oil company's way. Well, let me tell you now about, about how they responded to our church out here. I, I'm a member of our church board, and we have a small church, and uh, it's probably got 30 or 35 people, most of whom at our living on uh, retirement income. So we found it very, very difficult to get through the uh, pandemic, but uh, we did, and we paid all our bills and, you know, whatever. One of the things we had was we had a maintenance contract with with, uh, the oil company, to maintain our furnaces. Now, when, just before, now we were shot. I mean, our hall, we have a, we had a, we had a maintenance uh, contract for our hall, and we had another one for our church building. Now, we were shot down. We were closed. Our hall, we weren't able to open. We had no income whatsoever coming in. Of course, with no income, we weren't burning any oil. I mean, we couldn't afford just to burn oil uh, for nothing. When we opened a hall, we found out we had a little bit of a problem with our furnace. Our furnace wouldn't operate. So we contacted the company, and can I say the company? Well, I just want to go back to the beginning for a second, because when I thought we were talking big oil, I thought we were talking Suncor, Exxon Mobil, no, and no, those well, type of companies. You're talking about an oil distributor. The oil distributor. Well, they're all to me. I mean, uh, you know, all SO and all these are all big corporations to me. Oh, I'm not denying that, but I, I was just, my mind went in another direction. That's all oh, I'm trying okay, to clarify. So sorry, Pat, I didn't know what we were talking about when I started talking about Terra Nova, for instance, but okay. No. no. And so what did you try to arrange, and what was the outcome? Well, we called in, and we discovered that uh, our our maintenance plan that we've been paying for was canceled. Now, we wanted to know why, because we had paid paid our, uh, our, our, what we were asked, and everything was up to date, we were told we were canceled because we did not bought uh, uh, 1,200 liters of oil in a specified period. Now, why were we going to buy? How could we buy oil? Where would we put it? Because our tanks were just about full. Uh, We were supposed to buy uh, 1,200 liters of oil in order to maintain our maintenance project thing and it was impossible to do and now we're finding out uh they canceled that one we had to end up paying almost two hundred dollars to get uh that fixed now we're told that 
our one for the church is also canceled, even though they accepted our money during that period of time. Seems like a pretty hard line to draw here. Uh, I think the the summary point that you make is kind of hard to uh, ignore. Is where do they expect you to put the oil when the tank is full? Well, well, this is it. This is what now we've called in. We've talked to the one who sets up oil deliveries, and we've always asked to be transferred to uh, a manager. But it seems like every time we ask that, they have a problem with their phone lines. The phone lines, uh, it happened before Christmas when we asked about it, and again yesterday when, when I was talking to them, they couldn't seem to transfer me to a manager because they have problems with their phone lines. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, this is what I'm, I'm talking about, Patty. This is a company that is in this community. A church is very much a part of this community. We buy our gas from that company. We buy... A lot of people who have oil furnaces buy their oil from that company, and this company will not uh, furnace, uh, uh, maintain our furnace simply because we didn't have 1,200 liters of oil. Okay, so what's the outcome here? You've had your contracts cancelled. Is there not the opportunity simply to go to another provider, or are you out money for well, something that uh, wasn't delivered? Well, the, the the thing is, from what we can gather, uh, most oil companies have that same policy. Now, let me tell you how much money we've given, because we bought a furnace from that company that we were paying out. We, had, we were forced to buy an oil tank because uh, well, we had a perfectly good oil tank, but because the government says that it's outdated, we had to go buy an oil tank, uh, we, uh, and then we were paying out these bills, and the b- bit of oil that we bought, we gave over three years, we paid to this company $88,875. That's what came out of our church into that company, and they won't maintain our furnace. A new furnace that's not paid for yet, they won't even uh, give us maintenance on it. So where to from here? Uh, I don't know. Uh, can I say the name of the company? Uh, I guess if it's public knowledge in your region, I don't know if you're disparaging anybody. Who is it? Well, it, it's it's Ultramar. Okay. Yeah, so they're a big player, obviously. And, you know, it goes on to be, it enters into the silly range when you can't get someone in a managerial position to talk to because they have a problem with their phone lines. But that's what they tell me. Yeah, good one. So, I mean, this is what I'd like people to know. This, and there are people out there who may soon find themselves in this position because that may go for homes if, if, if you haven't had a certain amount of oil. In a certain period, and you've got a maintenance contract, they'll cancel it. Hmm. I suppose I should look at my maintenance contract. Well, uh, that is that is the, the facts. That's the hard fact. And like I said, 
you know, with this COVID thing and everything, we did well to stay alive. I mean, we had no extra money, but we had bad luck. Our furnace gave out. We we had to replace that. We replaced it through Altamar. We had an oil tank. We had to, to put a new oil tank in. Nothing wrong with oil tank, but the government says, and it's indoors. It's perfect oil tank, but we can't get it. Uh, we had to buy a new one. So we ended up, during that period of time, giving them $8,800, and they canceled our uh, maintenance on us. So that's what I say about uh, uh, these big companies. And you hear them on Patty talking about how we're all with you through the pandemic, and we're, we're doing what, you know, we're all there for communities and all this stuff. That's bull. They're not. They're all there for big money. Well, I mean, we all know, regardless of the industry we're talking about, a lot of that was no more than PR messaging, and that's that. You that's, know, it. that's what it is. You know, remember, it wasn't so long ago we were out banging pots and pans for different uh, people, whether it be truck drivers, those working in the grocery stores, and what happened? They got a little bit of relief with a little bit of bump and pay, and then oh, all of a sudden, here we are, right back to where we started, if not further back. Reg, I'm sorry this happened to you and your congregants, but I appreciate the time this morning as a first-time caller. Thank you very much, Patty. Take good care. Bye. Right, bye-bye. Uh, will I get another one here, Fonts? No, Fonts likes being on break. You're not my boss, Fonts. Simmer down. <laughs> Let's check in on the Twitter box. We're VOCM up online. You know what to do. You can follow us there. And, you know, comment uh, throughout the live conversations and or suggest topics or question, criticize, comment. It's up to you. Same via email. It's openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, we're talking food insecurity. Do not go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number two. Wayne, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you doing? Top shelf this morning. Wayne, how about you? That's very good. Boy, we missed you. You were away for a while there. Took a week off. Yeah, i got to burn my holidays before I lose them. And I said yesterday, I'm not losing them. <laughs> I hear you on that one. Patty, uh, over the last number of years, we've been ta- talking a lot about food security or insecurity or whatever. Sure. And today, I have no real feeling about where we are on that issue. We've had the government involved in pr- making land available and so on. That's moving ahead at a snail's pace. Yeah, well, we got the 500 hectares somewhere in the West Coast, I guess. Uh, Minister Byrne at the time was expecting a couple of farmers to get involved in that. I guess, according to his report, they backed out. So I presume that land is up in the air. I suppose. Now, the government did give us an update not long ago about some of the progress made with some crops, but... You know, the quest to have doubled food production across the board, I think it was by last year, did not happen. Yeah. That is in, I'm, it's a little bit of a mystery to me as to what the uh, land tenure becomes with these parcels of land that the province makes available for agriculture. What, what do you, do you mean? Know if, do you know if the land ownership is transferred from the province to the individuals or companies, or how does that work? 
I don't know, and I don't. I'm not even sure if there's a uh, hard and fast rule for every single applicant for every single crop. You know, from root vegetables to hydroponics to cattle or whatever else, the cranberries. I don't know if there's a one size fits all. To be honest. No, I don't know either, but I'd like to know because <laughs> you know there should be some consistency in it, and the way this stuff has been handled over the years, that many of the people that farmers, I guess, or whoever get involved in that don't tend to stay with it for the long haul for some reason. And that's a bit of a concern because what happens to the land is it, if it gets transferred to private owners, I guess, then that's the end of that. They can decide to farm it or not decide to farm it, and then they still own the land. And so I want to go back uh, to the, the issue of the cranberry farms again, too, because and we talked about that a number of times before. And many of those people that got involved in that gave up the activity, I guess, because of the price of cranberries. They couldn't make a, a goal of it, I guess, based on the price they could get for cranberries. But I just came back from a Nova Scotia-owned grocery store here, and the price of cranberries this morning is $3.69 for 12 ounces of cranberries in a plastic bag. You know, and it's, it certainly has to do with price and how long anyone stays at it. I'm sure they find out very quickly that it can be a very difficult job. And then I think probably one of the biggest issues facing them, if I hear the farmers correctly, is access to the market. I mean, to get your product in the big retail shops apparently is extremely difficult. So having to rely on uh, word of mouth and buying directly from or going to farmer's markets or the like, that's hardly the recipe for growing your business, scaling up your business, being profitable sooner than later. So I think there's a bunch of stuff facing uh, people in the agricultural industry. Well, I don't see that changing anytime soon, do you? Probably not. Because most of the major grocery outlets here are mainland-owned, and likely they have contracts with mainland suppliers for just about everything they're put on, putting on the shelf. So where the hell does that leave us? Food insecurity forever, I guess. So I think we got to get outside the model. And I don't know quite how that would be made to work, but if we're going to get stuck inside the supply model that we have now, we're always going to have that food insecurity, and local producers... They're not going to stay in it if they can't get their stuff to market. So, yeah, it's a, it, that is the most significant problem, as I see it, not food insecurity at all, but how local farmers can get their produce uh, to the consumer. Uh, food insecurity is a big envelope, isn't it? So we talk about one in four children in the province leaving a food insecure surroundings or home. Then there's the amount we import versus the amount we produce. And that number, I think that number kind of gets misconstrued out there. You know, we always say that we only produce 10% of what we consume. But I think that's basically only in relation to the big grocery stores. Does not include, you know, a bunch of different sectors. Does not include anything produced hydroponically. Does not include anything that's uh, produced in a homestead or a backyard farm or a community garden. So I think we've kind of got a bit of a misunderstanding about what that actually means in the first place. But even embracing, you know, there's a couple of programs that I think can make a difference for producers and for the locals. For instance, a program that sees locally produced, in one case, vegetables, to all be in every single long-term care facility, personal care home, school, and hospital in the province. That's a good market. 
that's a pretty solid market. So if we can get that right, then that'll do a lot to keep some of those producers alive and a market for their product. I also think we have to further embrace hydroponics and really try to pepper the landscape with those sort of close by where people live opportunities to grow stuff. You can grow almost anything in those hydroponic facilities. So I think we've got to, you know, kind of do a better job in breaking down what food security really means and tackle it one by one because if we think we're going to uh, eat that elephant, albeit one bite at a time, we're not really understanding what exactly we're talking about, we're probably going to spin our wheels. Well, that gets back to my point. Like we've been talking about food insecurity for a number of years, and today, in my case, I have no idea whether we've moved forward on it or whether we're just going around circles. There needs to be some kind of a solid plan developed, I guess, and presented to the people so we can understand what it is and, under, and make a determination of whether we're food insecure or not. <laughs> like today, I don't see any damn difference. I, I feel the same way now I did two years ago about food supply. And that's not to say that I'm you know, short on food or anything, but I know there are lots of people in the province who are suffering the consequences of you know food availability. Yeah, and again, there's just so much to it, isn't there? Because one of it is proximity. It's one thing for me to have access to all types of different foods and maybe some better value for money spent because I live in an urban setting. But if you compare that to someone living in Labrador or people who have to travel long distances to buy beyond the base necessities, it all presents a different challenge depending on who you are, where you are, your socioeconomic status, and, and a bunch of different things. So... That's, again, just very much like the affordable housing conversation. If we take it as a 100,000 feet above sea level, everything inside affordable housing is the same. It's not. And so, consequently, we probably miss the mark every now and then. I think the same point you're making here in food insecurity because it's a different conversation in Happy Valley Goose Bay or in Nain than it is in Burgio, than it is in uh, uh, Rose Blanche, than it is in town. So that's where we kind of got to do better messaging and try to figure it out. Yep, I agree with that, Patty, that... Uh the other thing is the land that has been made available for production here in the province, and yeah. a large part of it now is just sitting idle out there. And is there a plan to reactivate that, or what is this, you know, the ownership status and all those kinds of issues? Because the people of the province have made a pretty significant contribution in terms of making land available. Now, outside of that, you know, I'm not sure what all's involved, but. There's a lot more to it than land availability, for sure. Yeah, because, I mean, we had the uh, racket there a while ago about lime, and then the province's seed program has grown exponentially over the last number of years. So, obviously, there's something going on. I guess it's time for an update from uh, Minister Bragg on that front because it's a big topic that we talk about a lot, and justifiably so. I mean, access to nutritious, affordable, healthy food is a pretty big deal. We can, you know, try to curb our appetite for other things we consume, not food. Yeah, we all need food. It. Doesn't matter who you yeah. are, or what party you support, or man or woman. We all need food. Yep, you got to eat. There's no doubt about that. And you got to not only eat. You got to have the proper nutrition. Absolutely, hundred percent. Belly doesn't necessarily mean you have the proper nutrition. Anyway, that's just my issue for today. And uh, I'm curious now about whether or not the investment that's been put into cranberry production is going to be revisited, given that it's 12 ounces of cranberries today is $3.69 in a plastic bag. Yeah, the mega farm has yeah the mega farm has really changed the uh, the world of food, isn't it? I mean, just look at the number of family operated farms we had in the province uh, 
when we joined Confederation versus how many we have today. I mean, they're up against it, trying to compete with those entities and their purchasing power, whether it be for inputs like feed and fertilizer or fuel compared to a smaller operation, then it's access to shelf space. But, I mean, you think about it out loud. You go to the grocery store and you buy a bag of carrots that weren't from here. You go home, you peel them, they're bland, your hands are orange from the dye on the bloody carrot, versus you get something grown out at Lester's or wherever. You bring it home, they look more like an actual carrot. They don't, they're not perfect symmetry, every single carrot in the bag. They actually taste like carrots. They might cost a little bit more, but I mean, value for money spent is a conversation we don't have much in food because everything's so expensive that people, including me, are taking the least cost option because we kind of have no choice. In some well, some form, there's, there's all that, and I, I guess we got to individually take some responsibility ourselves too in in supporting local food production. I just came back from the grocery store with a bag of carrots. It was grown up in Conception Base House and packaged by the Peach family up there, and I was happy to do, see them on the shelf. And I'm always happy to see Newfoundland uh, production on the shelves in the grocery stores here, and it pisses me off. If I got to go to the grocery store and look for a bit of cod packaged in Ontario, I leave it on the shelf. Or Iceland. That's the one that gets me. Yeah, uh, well, I leave it on the shelf. If it's not done, stuff that's available here, that can be produced here, it needs to be on the shelves in the grocery stores. And the grocery store owners need to wise up. And our, we need to wise up a little bit ourselves and insist that Newfoundland products be made available. Yeah, but of course, the people making those decisions, their their office is in the Glass Tower, downtown Toronto. Yeah, I know, but right. when it's left on the shelf to rot because people don't buy it, they'll change their minds, probably. <laughs> Fair enough. Appreciate the time, Wayne. Take it easy, Betty. Have too, a good man. one. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, there's, it's a complex issue, no question. And this from a small farmer. You know, you also wonder where the Federation of Agriculture comes down as well and how they embrace and how they foster or nurture the startups, the small farms that are already in operation. And yes, a better understanding of the local use of chemicals could also be a healthy part of the conversation. Uh, purposefully chose the word healthy, especially when we're talking about where that produce ends up eventually. So that's a good one. All right, uh, how are we doing out there, fonts? Let's take a break for the newscast. And of course, we can switch gears, talk about whatever's on your mind. All you have to do is pick up the phone, speak with fonts, get in the queue, and on the air. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Suzanne, you're on the air. Hi, first time caller. I'm Welcome. very nervous. <laughs> Take your time. You're going to be fine. Okay, so... Um... A couple of days ago, we noticed, uh, okay, first of all, we're renting uh, a house with an in-law apartment. Mm -hmm. And um, so a couple of days ago, we found out that it was all flooded downstairs and it was coming from the pipes and everything came up like everywhere, like from the downstairs, from the sink, the toilet, the, um, every, everywhere. So there's like... The city came in here and told me that I'm living in like my. Uh, it's like I'm living in my septic tank. So wow. I called. I called the landlord at uh, I think like ten to two. He comes over at two. He said he was going to call his. Um, that was yesterday. He was going to after taking my money that morning. 
he was gonna he was gonna call the insurance company to come get a fix. Nobody came all night and told me not to use water. So I couldn't use water, no shower, couldn't brush. But I, I truthfully, I washed my face and brushed my teeth at Tim Hortons. That's how, and so now, um, like he's he, because I because I called the landlord tenants and I was told that a biohazards team had to go down there. Buddy said from the city that a biohazard team had to go down there to clean it. He came over to my house this morning and with some other guy. And he said he was going to go down and clean it. And he never even had a bucket in his hand. I said, where's the biohazard team? He said, no, we don't need one of them. And I just shut the door and I called uh, I called the landlord tenants again. And I said, you know, like, this is what's happening and had to leave a message. Um, but now, like, I, we can, now it's starting to come upstairs, like, in my, my place. And I'm, I'm asking them, like, can he hurry up, please? Can he hurry up, please? I need a place, you know, like, this, this is unlivable. And because I'm saying all this stuff, he's saying, you know what? You do what you do, and I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And I said, what, what are you going to do? And then he said, you'll get papers soon. So I guess he's going to evict me for wanting not to live in a septic tank. Is that is that even fair? No, it's not, uh, number one. And secondly, I'm always amazed at property owners who don't respond to property issues. It's their equity. I mean, it's their property. Why wouldn't you want to rectify that, not just for the benefit of your renter, which is, you know, should be the first consideration, but it's their own thing. They own it. Why wouldn't they want to clean it up as soon as possible? There's like three inches of water and all septic all over. Like my, my rec room carpet is ruined. Like I, 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 and you can smell it up here. And like it, it's grossing me out. It's grossing me out. Right, and and he says like he's gonna kick me out because I'm asking for like a biohazard team, because I won't let him and his friend come in with with no bucket, no nothing. Like, how's he? What's he gonna clean it with? Well, you can't do it with a cup and spoon. So there's, it's a big job, and it requires a, you know, not only the cleanup, and then you got to dry the place out, and obviously they're gonna have to cut back some drywall and flooring and all the rest of it to clean it properly. So that's terrible stuff. Uh, you should really get in touch with the labor, uh, the landlord tenancy board, to spell it out to them and see if they can give you some guidance as well. Yeah, I left um, I left a message for them as well. So I'm hoping that they'll get uh, they'll get back to me. But um, like I'm just worried. Like if this don't be cleaned up today, like this this house is not going to be livable, is it? Nope. Like it's, I, I don't know. I don't know. Like I'm just. Uh, and I have pets, and he knows I have pets, and he starts yelling and screaming at me because um, they're telling him, no, you're not coming in with just, like, some Javax. stuff got to be cleaned. Like, it's everywhere. There's, like, three or four, what, three or four inches of water downstairs on the floor? Oh, all over, like, the one, the, there's, it's a one-bedroom basement apartment, but it's an in-law apartment, right? Mm-hmm, I understand. So, um, I'm sorry? I understand. You know, and some of the hesitation, I suppose, because it's quite likely that there is no insurance coverage. So this is going to be an out-of-pocket expense, which might be holding him back, but that doesn't that doesn't deal with the issue head-on because even if he has to come out-of-pocket with some repairs here, it's certainly better to fix it up than to let it rot forever because at some point the cleanup will become much more expensive and the damage will be much more extensive, so it's in his best interest to get this cleaned up as well. So, uh, 
We like we don't we have not like like I said I had to brush my teeth and wash my face at Tim Hortons like this morning like and use the bathroom you can't you can't do anything up here he said and here it is what time is it now it, he was here at two o'clock yesterday it's, 11, it's ten after eleven right now and it's still down there and it's still coming up and it's still coming up and we're not even using water. Um. Yeah, that's that's an awful predicament to find yourself in. So I think as a rule of thumb, the folks at the Landlord-Tenancy Board are pretty good in getting back to folks who are trying to get some guidance or trying to file a complaint or trying to get some help. So if you could do me a favor, let me know if you get a response. If not, I'll try to do something on your behalf as well. Oh, thank you so much. I'll, they, they, uh, on, the, on the email, or, sorry, on the voicemail, it says that the, it'll take two days. So I don't know what I'm going to do for two days. You know. Yeah, and for them, that would just be the intensity of the numbers of people looking for help from the board, but they will get back to you, I'm pretty sure. My experience is they've been pretty good on that front, and I know two days sounds like a long time to wait, and it is a long time to wait when you're living in a septic tank, as you have articulated. But please keep me in the loop as to what's going on, Suzanne. I will. Thank you so much for listening. My pleasure. Stay in touch. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, what a state of affairs that is. Ugh. I'm going to keep going here. Let's go to line number two. Let's take it more to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. That's Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. I wanted to uh, talk quickly to you about the human resource plan for health care professionals, or rather the lack of a human resource plan. Yesterday we saw once again the uh, announcement that the province has actually lost more doctors than they've been able to recruit. So our uh, ability to retain doctors and recruit doctors is still not being done. At the same time as that comes out, we know there are continuing a growing list of shortages when it comes to our nurses, for example, who are leaving their profession because of working conditions. We have radiation therapists who are being chased away to other provinces, uh, which leaves our cancer care program at risk. Sure, let's go one by one, because some of those radiation therapists are being lured away, yeah. which is, you know, I suppose it might be a concept of one part chase, one part lure. But let's stick with doctors and some of the numbers so people know what we're talking about. So last year, or in 2021, pardon me, 122 family doctors did not renew their license to practice. There was indeed 115 new family medicine licenses issued, so a net loss of seven. On top of that, some of the newly licensed doctors are not working full-time. They're happy enough to take locums or to cover for a doctor or to work at a walk-in clinic. So even if we had just a net loss of seven, you can take that a few steps further because if you don't have a full roster, then you're only practicing halfway. And, I mean, it's up to them what they do. But, you know, so that net seven is actually worse than that. Absolutely. And here, here's the kicker. So there have been lots of chat talk about a human resource plan. The NLMA, as you suggested, have asked about that for a number of years. But back in October of 2021, October 18th in particular, the government, the Liberal government announced they were going to issue an RFP for the development of a healthcare human resource plan. That request for proposals was put on the street on March 11th of 2022, so a few months later. But as we, and I know that a number of companies responded to that request for proposals in April month. But here we are almost a year later, and there is no sign of that 
RFP, that request for proposals, ever being awarded. So instead of being here today talking about how a human resource plan is being implemented, we're talking about a human resource plan that hasn't even been awarded. Now, I want the Minister of Health to come on and tell you that I'm wrong, that in fact the human resource plan has been awarded and there is a human resource plan and, and have the Minister present it to the people, show it to the people of what it actually looks like and how it's being implemented. Did anyone even respond to the RFP? Absolutely. There were at least four that I know of that responded to it. You know, government might be a little bit shy on that front, given some of the RFPs in health. Number one, I don't know why we need an RFP for a virtual care offering. And then you look back at the phone med as the only respondent to that RFP and what we got ourselves into financially there. But if there's four, there must be some, there must be an attractive option inside of four. Right. And, and the whole principle, Patty, if, if, if that was your plan to go that route, then you should have executed that plan or at least come up with another plan. But that's the problem. There is no plan. So we're flying on the seat of our pants, and we're coming up with solutions. It's almost like we have a solution when it becomes necessary to have a solution. So it's, it's simply putting Band-Aids on it. I think the Premier even used that language when he was in PEI. So that's just not good enough. So I, maybe we should have started with this. What exactly is the Human Resources Plan for Healthcare? I mean, is it replicating work done by the newly minted Deputy Minister, uh, Dr. Megan Hayes, in recruitment and retention of healthcare workers, or what does this actually even mean? Well, that's the whole point, is that you have to sit down and work with the people in the system, as you just alluded to, but talk about laying out a strategy of what, your, what, re, what requirements we have in our province, where we require them, and how we're going to fill them. Those are the key elements of this. But if you don't start that process, or you're just doing it in, in crisis mode, it'll never work. For example, right now, has every single nursing student that's in, our, in a class in Newfoundland and Labrador been offered a full-time job or a contract? Have all of our medical students that are currently enrolled in the med school, have they been met with and offered contracts when they graduate? Like, there's lots of things that we could be doing now. We know we have a problem, but if we don't start addressing some of these issues, why, why has the government failed to tell the people of Bonavista, who we've heard the stories about three physicians wanting to go to Bonavista, why has the government failed to tell the people of Bonavista why that hasn't happened? Yeah, I mean, I don't know where the hesitancy would be. I mean, if it's, if it's a contract that's going to uh, be understood sooner than later, why not sooner? Because we're all going to see it, we're all going to know it. There's going to have to be some disclosure at some point, so I'm not sure what the holdup would be. And that, that's the whole problem. I don't understand the lack of transparency and accountability. People out there are suffering. People in my district are still paying $35 to visit a nurse practitioner. Government has failed to do anything about that. Government continues to fail, and that's because they don't seem to have a clear direction on what they're going to do. It's simply ad hoc, and let's move to the next one. Yeah, and, and fair enough. I mean... I think everyone would acknowledge, regardless of what party you support or what uh, party you represent, is that these are all complicated matters. But when we have either breakdowns in communication or a lack of communication, people's worries get intensified. And so that's, that's worst-case scenario. So I know government finds themselves under siege all the time, but that's the nature of the beast. I mean, you take on the governing role, then you take everything that comes with it. 
But the more you, and I'm not going to use the buzzwords of transparency and accountability because they're abused to the nth degree. But simple questions like, has a contract been awarded, is fundamentally a yes or no. And if it's a yes, then we can ask the appropriate questions as to what it looks like, who won it, what, the, what we're going to achieve, what are the timelines. But when it's silence, then the silence, as usual, is deafening. The silence intensifies people's worries and just opens himself up to criticism, which they could avoid, which is always sort of a strange way to operate in politics, as far as I can tell. And, and you're absolutely right. And let's go back to the document that the government put a lot of faith in and a lot of great people had a hand in developing the health accord. The health accord said the development of a human resource plan was urgent. Every healthcare organization, whether it's the nurses, whether it's the physicians, whether it's NAEP, have been calling and urging action on that. And here we're finding out that what you went out for almost a year ago either has not been awarded, or if it has been awarded, nobody knows anything about it, just like you just said. The lack of communication is causing anxiety, and government needs and has a responsibility to communicate with people and let them know what's going on. If I was involved in politics and bite my tongue, <laughs> that I would be, um, the first thing that I would try to achieve is to not manufacture whips for my own tail and go from there. That's exactly <laughs> right. Uh, very quickly, Tony, before I run out of time, and have to let you go. So now there are three. Eugene Manning, former president of the party, has joined the competition to be the next leader of your party. That includes yourself and, of course, Lloyd Parrott. Competition is good, but of course, Mr. Manning brings a different perspective as an unelected official. What do you make of the fact that, that there is now three vying for the top job? Well, I think it's, it's a reflection of the high interest in our party's leadership, and I think that's a sign that the people in the province are deeply concerned about the course the province is on. And right now, you and I both know people are suffering and urgently seeking a path out of this crisis. And they want a leader they know they can trust, someone with a plan and the depth of knowledge and experience that's required to get it done. And uh, it's not going to be an easy task, but it's certainly one that I am ready and equipped and experienced to take on. Appreciate the time this morning, Tony. Thank, Thank you. you. Take Bye. good care. Bye-bye. That's -bye. Tony Wakeham. He's the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Cindy's there to talk about housing. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line one. Cindy, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Thanks. How are you doing? I've been better. I've been better. Um, I'm going to start off with my son's um, spouse, uh, well, common law partner of over seven years, passed away a couple of weeks ago suddenly. Sorry to hear that. Number one, ambulances couldn't even get to her because of housing the way they had it plowed, three ambulances came, but neither one could get to her in a timely manner, or could they get her to the ambulance? Number two, um, I, my son called me, I got there and I waited and waited. So we left the premises, of course, that night. He didn't want to be there. So him and his friend, a friend that was staying there as well, um, came with me. And then the next day he went back there to start packing up 
everything and the dumpster is there every Wednesday so he was going to start throwing out what he didn't want and whatever have you and he was there and next thing he heard somebody and he said hello here was housing walked in didn't knock they walked in told me at five minutes to gather his stuff and get out threw him on the streets less than 20 hours after his spouse just passed away they knew he's been living with her for the past four years. He's been trying, we've been trying to get all his paperwork together. He has no income now for the past couple of years. And we were trying to get all his paperwork together. All the stuff is in uh, three different storage units because we had to get out of a mold infested place that was killing us. And they threw him on the streets. For what? What was the reason for the eviction? I'm sorry. Uh, because she passed away the night before. Yeah. They knew he was living there. They knew he was living there. They knew he was getting paperwork for them. And I said that to them, and they said, yeah, but he's not on it, so he has to leave. I said, like, can't you have a heart, give him a chance to pack everything up and get out of here? He's on the streets. He's got no clothing. He's got no IDs. He's got nothing. Everything is in that home. There's equipment belonging to Rogers in that home. If it's not returned, there's going to be a $2,500 charge. There's all kinds of stuff that's got to go back. There's all kinds of bills that were left. So he's not even allowed to collect his own belongings? No, and we've been to housing three times. We've put in about 50 calls. We got one guy that called back saying that, no, he's, he can't go in there, blah, blah, blah. He's not on the lease. I said they were working on putting him on the lease, and housing knows that. So... There was a social worker that was there that day with the housing guy. She works for housing. She called the gathering place. We went and seen the social worker at the gathering place. The housing emergency line phoned back and said, no way, no how. You get back to that house, you call the police. They are not allowed to do it. The landlord tenant told us they're not allowed to do it. I don't, I didn't think they would be. No, they're not. It's, everything they've done is totally illegal. So where to from here, then? He's in a shelter. That's a nice place to be when you just lost your spouse, and they're keeping her family, keeping them away from his kids. I got a pretty long list of stuff. Yeah, I got a pretty long list of uh, issues, whether it be individual issues or general policy issues to broach with Minister Abbott. But this one, during this news break, I'm going to put... Finger to keyboard and type up a message about this particular policy and this move. I don't know. I don't even know if I need a name. I just need to know if they can explain to me how that's acceptable and or legal in their mind to do what they've done here. Because, you know, when someone dies unexpectedly, how can anybody be nimble enough to turn back time and have his name on the lease and or to be given just a grace period to not only grieve, but to actually collect your stuff and pack it up? And take it out, exactly. as opposed to being turfed. So they this can have one, the furniture. We don't want it. They can have it. He wants his personal belongings. Of course he does. I'm going to go ahead and craft that email and see if they can explain to me how they're even allowed to do that, let alone whether or not it's fair or reasonable. Yeah. Uh, Newfoundland Labrador housing, I've that many calls, it's unreal. I've only ever spoken to one guy. Yes, at the end of the call, I've told him where to go. With, Of course, I... I'm just so upset with Lost all of cool. it. Yeah, I get it. Uh, let me do that much. And if anything breaks here, if you get any update for me, please do provide. But I am going to go ahead and type that up right now, see if I can get to the bottom of it.
most definitely, can someone please get back to us? Like, this is urgent. He can't even get a bank account to get help from the system because his IDs are all in the house. Yeah, that's ridiculous. He's got nothing. This has costed me over $3,000 because the first few nights he was in a hotel. Then I had to go out and buy them clothes, buy them food, buy them everything. Yeah. Let me it's let me have a shot at it. And their own their own emergency phone line said it's illegal. Go back. Yeah. I just started to bring up the address. Okay. Let me see what I can do, Cindy. Thank you so much, Patty. A- anything and everything will help right now. I appreciate the time. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Yeah, I mean, come on. You know, there's always gonna be some niggling and some noodling and some nuance, but give me a break. <laughs> you know, seriously. I mean, some people, you get that little whiff of power, and it goes directly to your head or whatever might be rattling around in there. Let's go ahead and take a break. Oh, this is great. Uh, let's talk to the chair of the Exploits Valley Port Corporation, Scott Sevier, about a windmill project that is in the news. Do not go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the chair of the Exploits Valley Port Corporation. That's Scott Sevier. Good morning, Scott. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? That's bad. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good, good. So where are you in the process here with regarding the government and environmental assessments and what have you? Because I know public consultations are ongoing. Yeah, uh, right now uh, we actually, on Monday night, we actually had a public consultation at the town of Point Newington. Uh, had some great attendance. There was about 50 people there. Uh, last night we were in the town of Botwood and uh, we had about 200 people there. Uh, great representation from the community as a whole. Uh, tomorrow, tonight we're in Bishop Falls at the Knights of Columbus from 7 to 9. So anybody who uh, couldn't avail of any of the other public consultations can actually come tonight at Bishop's Falls at Knights of Columbus. And on Thursday night we're at the Classic Theater in Grand Falls, Windsor from 7 to 9. Uh, so they can avail of either one of those public consultations if they didn't uh, have the opportunity to attend the first two. Okay, so where are you uh, with the government? Uh, with the government, uh, basically, we're getting ready to submit an application like any other proponent uh, for March the 3rd is our deadline. And I guess uh, we're working with uh, with Marine Contractors and Everett uh, as a joint venture with uh, three proponents, the Exploits Valley Port Corporation. And uh, we're putting together a proposal for a wind energy project within the central region. And uh, I guess that's where we're to with the proposal as a whole. Uh, we will have to sit back then, I guess, and let uh, government entertain that proposal. And uh, then we'll wait for the response from provincial government and move forward from there. So we're talking about a pretty massive scope and scale project here. All the controversy swirling around World Energy GH2 and their 164 wind turbines, which is only phase one. You guys are talking about some 300 turbines, or uh, 300 windmills or wind turbines. You're generating at the final phase some 3,000 megawatts. So... First off, I know that this is a pretty new thing in this province, and the whole issue with green hydrogen is also very, very new. Is that the goal? Is that your intended outcome here, is that you're going to create something very much akin to what World Energy GH2 is doing? 
Well, I, I guess uh, we've put the uh, – I think that really put the wind energy, uh, I guess, that particular portfolio in a very different class. Uh, the controversy that's going on in port to port is not what we're doing here in central Newfoundland. Uh, we've, div- we've taken a different approach. We're actually uh, doing consultation with all the communities, and I will say that we've met with each and every individual community uh, as a whole. We've met with uh, the town of Leiden Tickles and the local service district of Glover's Arbor. We've met with Point Leamington and local service district of Pleasant View, uh, the town of Point of Bay, local service district in Phillips Head, the town of Northern Arm, the town of Peterview, the town of Botwood, the town of Grand Falls, Windsor, and the town of Bishop's Falls. Uh, we want people to give people the opportunity to ask questions. Uh, and at the end of the day, we will take that feedback back, and uh, we will actually submit that with our proposal to government on March the 3rd. Uh, there's an opportunity here uh, for us as proponents to mitigate any of the challenges that the people are, are confronting us with, and they're realistic challenges. Uh, people are worried about uh, the landscape and uh, the visuals of it, but we figure we can address it, and, uh, and we're dealing with that in our, in our uh, public consultation process as well. And, of course, uh, one of the main uh, issues, I guess, with the general public, and, and I don't know about on the east or west coast, but I know we are in central, we have a, uh, a very large number of people that actually access the outdoor or the wilderness area. And, uh, and one thing that we're trying to stress to people is we're not taking that away. We will actually give people an opportunity to access the wilderness unlike they've been able to do over the last number of years, especially since the closure of Abitibi and, uh, and all these woods roads that have grown in. Uh, I know personally, I was off moose hunting the fall. Uh, I, ca- I can't access areas that I would normally access. Uh, so accessibility will actually be greater than it has ever been uh, in the past. So uh, we think this is a win-win for everybody. Uh, it will bring prosperity to not only our community, but the region as a whole. And it will bring back uh, uh, some activity in our port that's very vital to not only us or the region, but even as the province as a whole as well, Patty. So it says that the, the port uh, in Botwood would be the hub for shipping the fuel to markets in the United States and Europe. Does that mean that in Botwood there would be a, a hydrogen facility and an ammonia facility similar to what they're proposing out in Port-au-Port? Uh, I can't speak to the Port-au-Port, but we will be uh, hosting a, uh, a hydrogen and an ammonia facility here in the town of Botwood, and uh, that ammonia will be piped to our waterfront and, uh, and, of course, our history has spoken to uh, our close proximity to, to Europe uh, with the first transatlantic flights that happened in 1937 uh, with the first passenger flight. And, uh, and of course, our uh, history of shipping iron and ore from the Buckins mine for over 80 years and, of course, the paper from the Abitibi operations for over 100 years. Okay. So inside of this world, there's not a whole lot known. Like, for instance, people know who John Risley is, for better or worse. But the Exploits Valley Renewable Energy Corporation, there's some overlap with a company that has done some work in this world uh, regarding uh, Jade Power Trust. Can you talk about your relationship with that company, and are they bringing some of their best practices or business model to the province? Because they're making their operations in Romania, if I remember reading the story correctly this morning. So what's the relationship there? 
that, that's right. Uh, we've actually, uh, I, I really, I would can't speak any highly uh, of of them. Then, uh, then uh, there's no words out there to express my opinion on them. Uh, we've sat down with them on a number of occasions, and I got to say, they've brought a first class team uh, from all over the world, uh, experts in each and every. Uh, portfolio in the uh, the proponents proposal, and uh, I I can't say enough about them. They've uh, brought experts to to the table, and uh, they have a history of about ten years in the renewables, and uh, and of course their uh, their wind farm in Romania has been a positive uh, in their portfolio, and uh, of course they have. Uh, this is new to all of us. I understand that, but they do bring an expertise to the table that we're unaware of, uh, but they brought some knowledge to us, and uh, we just feel very, very comfortable. And, of course, are there going to be challenges? Sure, there's going to be challenges. Uh, this is new to us, but it's not new to our proponents, and uh, and they brought the people that support them to the table, and uh, we feel as a whole that we have a first-class team uh, that can actually bring a product uh, that's really needed uh, going into the future. Uh, you know, when we talk about these uh, industries, albeit very new, we understand somewhat what mining and oil and forestry and fishery all looks like and feels like and benefits from. You know, you talk about 2,000 jobs in the construction phase, 500 permanent jobs thereafter. How do you ensure that the locals get it? Because there are some, you know, of course, some tradespeople with lots of experience can be part of the construction phase. But let's just say Bader Nord goes ahead. Let's just say World Energy goes ahead. At some point, when we talk about a nationwide labor shortage, it's going to be, have to be something you broach. So how committed is the company to having those jobs be filled by locals and the training required so they can be part of this? Because if we simply bring in a lot of people, there will be a lot of benefit to the company, maybe not as much benefit to the people of the province, considering we don't even know what a royalty structure looks like or level of taxation and what the complications are of selling excess power back to the grid, which... Might not be the best thing for Newfoundlanders, but what is the the job, the labor shortage, and how are you going to broach it if and when a lot of these things come to pass at the same time? I agree with you. I know labor has been uh, the one of the big proponents that have come up uh, in our conversations. Uh, but what I will say is that we will uh, we we are confronting, uh, I guess the uh, the schools on that matter uh you know there will be opportunities for uh, uh different types of classes to be offered uh that will give the skill set for uh, generations to come to be able to get into this field of uh, of windmill operations uh so we feel that that will be uh you know that will be a big step forward for us uh of course we always we always know that we're uh, you know that we're going to have to uh, go outside of the province for for labor. We know that at some point in time, no difference than Alberta came here and reaped our labor resources for uh, for the oil and gas industry. Uh, we're probably not going to be on like them. We're probably going to have to go elsewhere for labor. But uh, first and foremost, we will address uh, the local colleges and that here, College of North Atlantic and that, to address the needs and the skill set of people that uh, are going to are going to need going forward to operate in a windmill operation. What can you tell us about HydroStore and the air storage aspect of the project? And that's a question coming from a listener. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I don't know a lot of the details on it, uh, other than the fact that it it do uh, give us the opportunity to run a facility that uh, is totally off grid. Uh, and at the end of the day, it do give uh, our proponents an opportunity, if the government so wishes, 
to feed back to the grid. Uh, you know, that's just an opportunity uh, for the province. Uh, that's not the, you know, the proposal is not based on that. Uh, but it also, we all know that not every day there's a, a huge proponent of wind. So, uh, you know, on, in those off days, that gives the, the plant an opportunity to continue operations. Unlike solar, of course, if you had solar and in the nighttime, uh, you know, there's no sunlight, so there's no garnering back the power. Uh, this particular storage uh, capability has the ability to continue to feed the, uh, you know, the plant so that it can operate on a 24-7 basis. Uh, but it also, uh, like I said, it's not in the proposal itself. Uh, but, of course, if Newfoundland Hydro is interested, uh, it could actually help the province going forward. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, that's up to uh, Hydro Store uh, proponents and, of course, Newfoundland Hydro uh, to come to some kind of terms or agreement on that if that was uh, if that's a piece that's going forward, going to be looked at. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, battery storage technology has advanced greatly, making solar a little bit more appetizing even in places, that, you know, like, say, for instance, unlike Arizona, with 327 sunny days a year, and, of course, they have nighttime yeah. as well. So this is a big deal. They're talking about some 5 or $6 billion dollars. Does your proposal include you've secured the capital? Uh, well, actually, I guess that's the next step going forward. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, our proponents are going to, they're, they're stipulated by March the 3rd deadline. Of course, government will come back uh, with a ton of response, uh, you know, advising them that their project is a go. Uh, and then, of course, they will go out and find private investment. And uh, we've been reassured that the private investment will be there. So, uh, you know, going forward, that shouldn't be a concern for any of uh, any of our listeners right now. And we'll not be looking to the province for any provincial dollar support? Nope, we will not be looking for any federal or provincial help. Now, there may be tax credits within the regimes of both provincial and federal uh, governments, but, I mean, uh, that's something that any business would avail of. Uh, if you know if that uh, those uh, you know those credits are available, I appreciate the time this morning, Scott, and look forward to updates when available. Thank you, Patty, for your time, and uh, and to all the listeners once again, uh, Knights of Columbus and Bishop Falls from seven to nine tonight, and of course at the Classic Theater in Grand Falls, Windsor, from seven to nine tomorrow night. Get out, and uh, you'll hear some interesting news, and we'd like to hear from everybody. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Patty. Appreciate the time. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Scott Sevier, chair of the Exploits Valley Port Corporation. All right, let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the Executive Director of the Eating Disorder Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador, Paul Toomey. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Not bad, thanks. How about you? Uh, not too bad at all. A little bit of interesting weather out there, but a good day to get some things done and a good day for people to uh, to buy some 50-50 tickets from us. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what we were talking about today, so what do you got going on? There's a couple of things I wanted to talk about. We've uh, we do have a new fundraiser this year. First, uh, I guess I can officially tell you, and I think you and I have talked about it before. We won't be doing our drive-in bingo this year. It's uh, it just didn't prove to be successful financially last year, so we've decided to pull back from that. 
but we have gotten a license to do three 50-50 ticket fundraisers. So uh, we've got uh, tickets on sale, $2 each, three for five. You can purchase tickets by calling our main number, 722-0500. And we've got 3,600 tickets printed for the first draw. And so the winner could take home $3,000 if we sell them all. And the draw date is May the 15th. So uh, that's fundraiser number one for this year. People love the 50-50. You know, it's a, a go-to for a lot of organizations. And I think they have a lot of success. You know, I know this is a big question, but... What specifically does the foundation have to fund, you know, in the short term? Where are some of the shortcomings where you need the money to do X, Y, or Z? Well, in the short term, uh, I guess I, I can look at today and say I have, my staff is working and we're carrying out programs. In fact, we have a uh, an emotion-focused family therapy uh, program for, uh, for families uh, ongoing as we speak. Uh, by Zoom. So I, I, it's not so much that I'm worried about the day today as in today, but I look at my budget and say I need to raise $300,000 this year. I know that government is going to provide a certain amount and I have to raise the rest of it. And if not, then we're not going to be able to keep keep ourselves going. We're not going to be able to keep the doors open if we don't raise that money. And just to wrap some context around, you know, sometimes, you know, I maybe I interchange all these things in my own mind because my mind is so addled. But, you know, we talk about everything inside the school that's bullying from knocking the books out of my hand to punch me in the face. We talk about everything in affordable housing as one thing. We talk about everything in food insecurity as all the same thing. And same thing with eating disorders. It's just not that. It's not that simple. We're talking about a very complex mental illness that comes in many forms and fashions, uh, dealing with different genders and ages. So where do you think some of the misnomers are where people maybe don't have a firm grasp of what we're talking about when we say eating disorder? Because they may just simply think they, you know, look at a fashion model and the binging and purging. But it's so much more complicated. Uh, it's much more much more than that, Patty. It's a, it is a complex mental illness, as you say, but the the other side of it is it has very serious physical repercussions. So, it's and that's what makes it complicated. Not only is it a mental illness, uh, it's it's also that physical element that uh, that I guess people really start to notice. And you're right. One of the biggest misnomers is the fact that it's the emaciated young woman. Uh, it's not that. I mean, that's that's anorexia, certainly, but uh, binge eating disorders become an illness that uh, it's the purge binge type of affair where uh, it's added to our numbers immensely, and it has been diagnosed as a specific eating disorder. So you're right. It's very, very complicated. It takes a long while to treat. Many people don't recover ever they constantly need support and treatment and as a result we're there to help support them and make sure they have the uh, the place that they can go and but more importantly it's the families families around young people dealing with an eating disorder and you're, and you're right about the gender it makes no difference what gender and it makes no difference what age uh, but having the family supports, in other words, having families trained so that they understand the illness, they know how to work with their loved one to help them on that journey of recovery. That's what we're all about, and that's the kind of things that we need to be able to keep doing every day because we get phone calls almost every day from new families saying, I think I have a problem. I think I have a problem with my son or daughter. Or grandparents. We get a lot of grandparents who call us saying, 
I think there's a problem with my granddaughter. What can you do to help mm-hmm. me? So uh, there's a there's 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 a lot, and yes, we need to keep our doors open every day, and we're not fully funded by government, so it's a combination of writing grant applications um, and doing fundraisers like this fifty fifty suite that we're doing. Uh, where do they get the tickets very quickly, Paul, before I run out of time? Okay, very quickly. Tickets are available, $2 each, 3 for 5 Call our office, 722-0500. If, you can't, uh, if, if that becomes tricky for you, edfnl.ca. And don't forget our annual general meeting, which is on March 30th as well. Appreciate the time, Paul. Good luck with it. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Paul Toomey, Executive Director of the Eating Disorder Foundation. All right, we're out of time. Good show. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonce King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.